This is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. We're doing a rewatch of Penny Dreadful, Season 1. This is Episode 1, Nightwatch. Welcome, fellow Penny Faithful. This is TV Podcast Industries. We're doing a rewatch of Penny Dreadful. We're looking back at seasons one to three before the launch of Penny Dreadful City of Angels in April. In this episode, we're going to be talking about episode one of the show, Nightwork. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, Penny Faithful. I am one of your other hosts, John. And we have a very special guest joining us for our discussions about Penny Dreadful. We have Ray from Into the Night, the Moon Knight podcast. <laughs> Welcome, Ray. Hi, how are you both? Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Very excited to talk about Penny Dreadful. Cool. Yes, our, our time traveller uh, across space and time is, <laughs> whilst he has a glass of wine, we have a cup of coffee. Mm, very disappointed, <laughs> but I don't really want to be drinking wine at 10 o'clock in the no, morning. No, no, that's true. Definitely. <laughs> We'd truly be in the Victorian era for doing that. It'd be absinthe. We'd be sort of dripping stuff, water Ooh. over sugar, mm. and then strange things would happen. We definitely wouldn't be able to record a podcast on absinthe, John. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> that did look delicious, actually. It did, didn't the absinthe. it? But we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly will. We certainly will. Uh, welcome aboard, Ray. Um, we have known Ray for a couple of years uh, as another podcaster doing a great podcast about Moon Knight, a Marvel Comics character. Uh, Ray, do you want to give a little overview of your, uh, of your podcast and, and what you do? Yeah, um, basically we're based, or I'm based, I keep on saying in plural, there's mm-hmm. only one of me, but um, <laughs> based in Australia, uh, a big Moon Knight fan, uh, and we basically do anything and everything Moon Knight. So talking about the classic run, comic books, uh, to the modern run, the current issues coming out, um, toy action figures, video games, uh, and the up-and-coming TV show, which we're all very excited about. That yes, cracked. we are. Um, that cracked the internet for us last year. So, <laughs> uh, the announcement. So, no, no, very, very excited. And, uh, yeah, we have a, a nice community going around with, um, it's very, very fun to interact with like-minded comic book fans and, mm-hmm. and Moon Knight fans. Um, it's, it's a strange thing. It's a very niche market, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Moon Knight. Um, but it's, it's always amazing to see the, the level of fandom mm-hmm. that people, bring to Moon Knight, um, and I'm talking about, you know, rooms full of statues and, and books. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's, it's very fun and very exciting. Um, so we, we come out every week, uh, and, yeah, we, depending on the phase of the moon, um, we um, base our shows on, on whether it's a full moon, a new moon, mm-hmm. <laughs> different segments, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, and it's really interesting, isn't it, because the character of Moon Knight is based kind of around Egyptology and kind of around some... Uh, some references mm. to that type of stuff. So seeing stuff in Penny Dreadful and, and kind of connecting it with this character of Moon Knight it kind of is, is a good reason why Ray's involved in this podcast with us as well. Uh, there's some things in here that you'll probably recognize from some of the um, mythology behind Moon Knight as well, which I thought was interesting. Oh, absolutely. My eyes actually.
nicely lit up. I mean, we'll get to it as well when that, you know, that reveal kind of came to light. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm very excited to, to – I did a bit of research as well because I wanted to be up to speed with my Egyptian – you know, mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, look, looking forward to we'll, we'll get into that soon. Excellent. And finally, before we get into the main body of the podcast itself, right, where can people find Into the Night and Moon Night podcast? Sure. Yeah, we're on all the, the usual social platforms. I I don't include the likes of Snapchat mm-hmm. and TikTok. I'm too old for that. So I, I don't you. know what the hell that is. <laughs> Anything that disappears in a couple of seconds, I just can't abide by as a social platform. <laughs> I like longevity in my social platforms, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So Facebook, Twitter, um, basically uh, facebook.com slash ITK Moon Knight or Twitter, a handle is at ITK Moon Knight. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, uh, we've also got a webpage as well. So uh, that's a little bit longer, Mm intothenightpodcast.wordpress.com. But yeah, you can can just search Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast, and we should come up. Absolutely. And I'm sure if you search Moon Knight at this stage, you guys have been around long enough, you should be able to find the Moon Knight podcast because it is the best. <laughs> Probably only, but the be- definitely the best. Uh, Absolutely. Podcast out there. Oh. Uh, for the rest of us, if you are joining us for Just Penny Dreadful, you can subscribe to us on tvpodcastindustries.com. We have many connections to all the places where we are. Uh, you can also leave a voicemail about your thoughts about any episode of Penny Dreadful or any of the shows that we cover. Go to our website and over on the right hand side, you can click a button and leave up to 90 seconds of your thoughts. If you want to go a little bit more in depth, you can email us to feedback at TV Podcast Industries and we'll take your thoughts and leave them in our Penny for Your Thoughts feedback section. Yes. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's nice. Yeah. John came up with that about three and a half seconds before yeah, we exactly. started recording. So uh, I like that. <laughs> Must do feedback. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> In regards to the podcast about Penny Dreadful itself, the way we're going to be releasing these episodes is first on Patreon. We're going to be releasing each of our four episodes uh, to our Patreon followers. So if you want to subscribe to us on Patreon, go over to patreon.com slash TV Podcast Industries and you'll get each episode before it's released to our main feed on TV Podcast Industries. We're going to discuss episodes one to four in that big podcast. And the way we're going to discuss it is we're going to talk about our big moment of each episode as we go through it. It's not going to be as in-depth as some of our podcasts. We're not going to talk about each episode for two hours as we do sometimes uh, we're going to try, try and stick to the major points that that reveal what's going on in the full season this is going to be really tough for is, me i must say because even just trying to pick out a big moment like it's so complex mm-hmm. sort of diverse intricate uh the penny dreadful series just picking out that one moment is like oh no but there are three of us yep. so we will at least pick out mm-hmm. three big moments and we will have notes so we you know we will capture as much of the episode as possible but i think uh even on a full podcast it would be pretty difficult Mm -hmm. um you could be there for like 12 hours i would say a little bit of a misunderstanding here, guys. I blocked out about 12 hours. I thought, we're going to go. I'm raring to go. So. Excellent, excellent. Ray is recording into next Wednesday. I love yeah, that. by the time we finish, we will be on the wine. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like it. That's a, that's a good plan. Yeah. Aim for wine time. Uh, let's get into episode one of the show. Nice work is the name of the episode, uh, a reference to the fact that Ethan is being brought into this group, getting his nice work from Sir Malcolm. Uh, the episode is directed by J.A. Bayona, a very famous director nowadays, known for his horror movie The Orphanage which is very well worth your time. His big Hollywood movie I suppose uh, is Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. The second or fifth sequel to the Jurassic Park franchise I yeah. think probably fifth. Uh, most recent anyway. And he's already scheduled to direct the first two episodes of the Lord of the Rings TV series. So he's going to be over your neck of the woods right? Close anyway. And rightly so. Mm-hmm. Beautiful country <laughs> New Zealand. Yep. Australia beautiful as well. Mm-hmm. Although 
I think our terrain isn't quite suitable for Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. more like Mad Max. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's true. Happy to stay in New Zealand. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the executive producer on the show is Sam Mendes. Good to just reference him here. The showrunner for the show, John Logan, uh, previously worked with Sam Mendes. He wrote some of the scripts for James Bond, for Spectre, for Skyfall. Um, he also wrote Star Trek Nemesis, which is kind of connected to the show that we're covering on on the podcast, um, Star Trek Picard. Um, so interestingly, there is a connection there with, with John Logan. But I think the clout that Sam Mendes brought to the show allowed John Logan to do what he's doing with this show. He may not have got it made if it hadn't been for having such a an acclaimed director like Sam Mendes involved. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think you can just see you can see a certain quality, can't you, running through uh, the show, even even just down to the the cinematography, mm-hmm. the the production design, the costumes. Um, it, it's really nice. But I think as well, John Logan just brings that contemporary sensibility to the victorian period which mm-hmm. i i really like and um, you know it it doesn't feel um of its time it feels something fresh new um dare i say it contemporary it's just that they're wearing corsets uh, and top hats yeah. uh, and I, I really like that I, I really like how he's able to bring and contemporize this world um i think mm-hmm. yeah i mean for me john logan he came totally out of nowhere like i'd, I'd had not, you know, known his association with Sam Mendes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, watching shows like Game of Thrones, um, production, the production values on those sorts of shows, um, were kind of the, the, the benchmark, mm-hmm. um, for TV shows for me during that time. And so when this came out, it's like, who's this John Logan guy? Yeah. Immediately, even from the, the beginning, the theme with the music, um, mm-hmm. just the way the opening credits, I kind of knew it's like, oh, this is kind of very much like, the production values of, of Game of Thrones. Yeah. So, um, it was very reassuring. And exactly as you say, John, uh, there is a contemporary sensibility to it, but, um, there, there still has, there still is a Victorian, um, old school feel to it. Yeah. I mm-hmm. love the, one of my notes was that the, the poetic script writing, um, the, the lovely, lovely lines for all the actors to, um, to deliver. So yeah, it was, um, is a pleasant surprise. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And uh, John Logan writes the script for pretty much every episode of the show, uh, at least that we've seen so far. I don't think he has anybody else on board throughout the whole series. It's pretty much his vision that's being brought to life. John, do you want to tell us what he gave us with your synopsis for the first episode of Penny Dreadful Nightwork? Sure. London, 1891. Vanessa Ives and her colleague, renowned explorer Sir Malcolm Murray, recruit marksman Ethan Chandler to undertake a job with them. They try to recover Sir Malcolm's daughter from a group of vampires. They're not successful, but do recover an evil-looking creature which is covered in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Sir Malcolm enlists the help of foppish Egyptologist Mr. Lyle to decipher the hieroglyphics and a young scientist, Victor Frankenstein, to find any other clues in the gruesome body. Meanwhile, the police are investigating the grisly murder of a young mother and daughter who have been torn apart. Literally. Yeah, quite literally. Um, <laughs> although that is probably the worst go- uh, way to go for the mother, that you die on the crapper, mm-hmm. effectively. Yeah. Uh, pull through the window. <laughs> what um, a way to open the series. Though, yeah, you know? exactly. Um, and I did jump as well, yeah. so it was it was always good. Yeah, any, any regular listeners to TV Podcast Industries know, despite the fact that John screams at the littlest things in horror he absolutely loves horror and this is just right in his wheelhouse where he's able to be terrified by tv <laughs> yeah i recently screamed in um uh harley quinn um the birds of prey mm. movie 
And I can't even remember what it was about now. I just remember letting <laughs> off a loud shout in the cinema and going to myself, was that that loud? Uh -huh. Probably the rose behind heard that. It was. Um, and Toy yeah. Story 3 as well, that gruesome horror movie uh, that it is, uh, elicited a jump response from me as well at one stage. Uh -huh. Teddy bears are evil, uh, Penny Faithfulers. <laughs> they are evil. I, I guess it's a, an obvious thing to say as well, but they do horror really well on this show. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It, it comes in like little bits here and there. I mean, there's obviously that supernatural element, yeah. but when you get that scare factor or, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of a trope when um, someone turns around and they turn around again or um, and there's someone right in your face or yeah. in this instance there's a – a really inhuman kind of movement, like that woman just got pulled through the window. Yeah, um, it's it's really quite shocking, and yeah, um, yeah I, I think I think they do the graphic violence well, if I can say that. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. For the first episode of the show, because it is the first one, and because we're being introduced to most of these characters for the first time, what we're going to do for our main point is talk about one major character. Um, as Ethan is basically the point of view character for the audience, um, he doesn't really have a storyline for a lot of the episodes. I know that sounds like an odd thing to say, but he is the main character of the show in some ways for an audience who's looking back at the Victorian era. He's an American coming into England, seeing their lives and how they do things. There's even a point, I think, when somebody says to we do things the way we do things here get out of here American kind of thing so he is that point of view character so we're not really going to talk much about him specifically in the first episode but I think he'll probably come up in his reactions to things that go on uh, within the episodes um, so we're going to talk about the three main characters here John do you want to take our first one we're going to talk about uh, Sir Malcolm Murray first yes Malcolm Murray played by Timothy Dalton uh, who incidentally played the hedgehog in Toy Story 3 as well and um, <laughs> the German hedgehog um, so there's a, a quick little segue between those two things to me, uh, I think he's not very sympathetic, this character. He is that classic um, Victorian explorer gentleman mm -hmm. um, who has, has a very strong will here. I mean, it, it's very much uh, the explorer, you know, the British Empire associations and around that Alan Quartermain uh, figure, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I suppose recently with the League of Gentlemen um, that was done that explorer version. So he, you know, he's, he's a colossal figure. Um, he has this massive house. Um, you know, he's well connected within, um, London society. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, um, I think for me in, in this episode, it really comes into his own where they are going, uh, to this vampire nest. Um, which I really like the fact that they have to go through an opium den. Um, yeah. and, and yeah. I, I think that's another great thing about this show. Um, it, it's that hidden, it's that shadow world of Victorian real society. So it's the opium den, it's the drug taking. I, I think in, in episode two, we have the pornography. Yeah. Um, and you have the, the illegal blood sports in, in episode four. All, all these, uh, very highfalutin, uh, members of civic London society, yet they would go and regularly take uh, opium and and to get to the shadow world of a vampire's nest and, and the superstition around that they have to travel through the the kind of shadow world of victorian society for what is a, a really nice kind of fight down in sort of this basement area mm -hmm. um they've recruited ethan chandler and um you know he he's he's wondering what the hell these people are doing uh, you know he's been warned about what he may see uh, and you have kind of 
Vanessa Ives uh, here played by Eva Green sort of uh, along as well uh, but the two of them very kind of if if I can say it comfortable in in this world they know what to expect and I like seeing Ethan's expression as these these three kind of um I suppose valets of the of the vampire come to greet them and you you have a great fight um down here in in the basement mm-hmm. uh, and I love that Malcolm Murray has his own needle shall I say that comes from his cane to take yeah. down that lead vampire in the nest and um, there's a great moment actually uh, where the camera pans back uh, behind the shoulders of, of the vampire sort of towering over Ethan uh, and you see the strength of it is really nicely done uh, and ultimately um he is Malcolm Murray, though, it is the one that takes him down, but aided very ably by uh, Vanessa Ives, who seems to have this inner steel uh, herself. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, he, he he's kind of running this, I suppose I'm calling it a company, uh, sort of, yeah. I suppose ultimately what we find is he he's the one in charge, in, in a sense, at least in terms of Dosh, um, and obviously for uh, the aims of it, which is to to find, um, you know, and, and look for his, his daughter, mm-hmm. who has been... Um, you know, kidnapped, I suppose, by, by, um, the, the vampire. Um, but this is not the right vampire. She's not in this nest. Um, again, another little sort of nice link back, I think, with Mina Murray, his daughter. Mm-hmm. It is, um, sort of direct reference to Bram Stoker's Dracula mm-hmm. in that, in that it's Mina Harker and it's Jonathan Harker's fiance. Um, but her maiden name in the book is Murray. So yeah. it's taking it that kind of step before, um, which is really nice. Um, and of course, Vanessa Ives is kind of his daughter's childhood friend, I think, as well. But I think we really see that there's probably a complication here. Mm-hmm. And again, I think, you know, you get the feeling with Sir Malcolm, he's searching for his daughter, that there's some kind of bond. But I think you really do get the sense that, you know, his relationship with his daughter is not quite that good really um across the seasons and and it's complicated and it's complicated between uh mina and vanessa as well so i think i think timothy dalton plays malcolm murray really nicely i mean he's he's just so unsympathetic he's very direct and to the point you don't get the sense of him being a loving father to his daughter or indeed to his son that there is that standoffish uh element to him yeah um and it, it you kind of wonder how strong this company uh, uh that forms is because um you know you you do get an uncomfortable sort of relationship forming between him and vanessa who are the main people here kind of driving this but um great to have such a, a good actor in Timothy Dalton. I think he, he's really good in, in, in this. And I, I love his, his valet, uh, Samembe, mm-hmm. as well. Even though he doesn't really say too much here. But again, I think that links to this sort of, I suppose, the uncomfortable notion of colonialism. You know, how has Sembe come into his his employ? Mm-hmm. And this idea of um, sort of, I think it's like, black capitalism and exploitation um you know but i i think samembe is really nicely done that that quiet grace that he has as well and kind of speaks a lot Um, and interestingly malcolm does seem to put an awful lot of trust 
in him certainly at this stage so yeah. that relationship is is kind of interesting to to me as well even though Semembe maybe doesn't feature um uh, as extensively as the other characters mm-hmm. as well so i suppose he's the central point of this company ultimately mm-hmm. yeah he, um I, I find sir malcolm quite a, a quite a complicated character um because it could have so easily been him being a, a, a guy driven to look for his daughter and, and that's it. And there's yeah. nothing yeah. that he needs to. What, what you mentioned, John, and what really does make him interesting is that he's doing this almost. So I, I kind of pitted him like a mix between Quartermain and, and Captain Ahab. You know, he's yeah, so yeah. driven, um, to, to, to hit this goal. But at the same time, we do find later on, and there are little tidbits along the way, that his relationship with his daughter isn't, exactly. it isn't the best. So it's like, why is he so driven to do it? Is it this competition or this kind of um, drive that he has, which he's picked up in his travails in, in Africa and, and expeditions, exactly. um, that has kind of informed his um, motivation to do it? Mm-hmm. And he's kind of lost his way. Because, yeah, as you say, with his son – with his wife, I mean, he's not the ideal no. um, person. Yeah. Um, but he is very good to have, I think, in this team. He he's rock solid, as you mm-hmm. say. He's uncompromising. Um, I've got, I love this um this little quote that he puts on. I've, I'll put it here. Uh, he says to Ethan Chandler, uh, "Don't be amazed by anything you see, and don't hesitate." That is just such a that was yeah. so cool because mm-hmm. we we are coming into this world with Ethan. And we don't know what the, what is happening. You yeah. know, we don't know what is going on. We've never seen this nest before. And uh, Ethan's going in cold. He meets Vanessa uh, and he meets Sir Malcolm. And the first thing they say is, look, can you handle a gun? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to go in this thing. Um, just be ready to shoot. You know, yeah. if yeah, you have yeah. no compunction to kill, um, here we go. And don't hesitate. And I find that line really cool because um, Sir Malcolm and Vanessa – They've obviously experienced and, and come across these creatures before, mm-hmm. but, um, but they show a, a real steel to them. And, um, and further also to your note as well, John, about Vanessa, that, that scene with the creature coming up, um, up over Ethan, mm-hmm. that was one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. Um, there's just this unseen power from Vanessa. She mm-hmm. has this thing. She's so mysterious yeah. and it's peppered throughout the whole series and in episode one as well. She seems to know stuff. Um, she's a lot more, obviously the opening scene is, is testament to that. She's um, meditating in front of a crucifix. The mm-hmm. spiders come up. Um, but yeah, she's very kind of mysterious. And the fact that she could go look this creature in the eye and it backs down. Yeah. To me, that, I mean, that was a really big wow moment. <laughs> and I love that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's a moment when you know you're going to need to watch Vanessa Ives, isn't it? Uh, one of the things yeah. I really like about Malcolm is that he is a very stereotypical character in, in the Victorian times. You know that there was these explorers that came back from their foreign travels and effectively were knighted immediately. And then they lived in the land of privilege from that point onwards. Without having a character like Malcolm here, this company could not possibly be formed. And um, he go, mm. the, the reason why they take Ethan is because he's effectively looking for money. He's on the run. They He needs money and they they need a gun hand so they take him on. The reason why they get Victor Frankenstein on board is because as they say, he has yeah. the heart of a poet and the bank account of one too. So they get him on board mm. because Malcolm has the money to pay for it. Um, I really like that it all circles around Malcolm. He needs all these people and he has the money and willingness to do it. But they also play into the fact that he is an explorer and a hunter throughout the world. He's gone on these hunts many times and now he has to do one in search of his daughter. Whether they have a good relationship or not, what comes across often with Malcolm is 
it's still his daughter. It's still the person he has to save. He can't just leave her and walk away. So, no, but yeah. I, I think there's, I think to, to Ray's point as well, I think there's an inner explorer within him. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. he, he talks in a later episode about the Holy Grail, which is the source of the Nile. And it was, it was this obsession. Um, and it, it's, it's now that he's trying to follow that, that river of superstition, uh, to these unusual creatures that, he knows are there to find out more. Um, and I, I think that's really uh, interesting. I think as well, not that I'm drawn to Malcolm Murray, but a, a, as a, a geographer, mm-hmm. you know, the Royal Geographical Society, it, it, you go in there and you see all these people that have done exploration back in that time. And it was certainly founded around uh, that, that kind of element. It. So it, there's an uncomfortable relationship here with that subject. And I suppose, British exploration mm-hmm. back in the Victorian period, um, but all all these, you know, the the naming of mountains and and the naming of rivers, finding Victoria Falls, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that this, um, you know, a waterfall, a huge waterfall uh, on the border of uh, Zimbabwe and Botswana happens to be called Victoria Falls after, um, you know, a a queen that that reigns so many uh, miles away it is just kind of slightly um so it's slightly sort of grating in a sense <laughs> but it's kind of that's what they did mm-hmm. and i find that immensely kind of interesting that that kind of element to this yes, absolutely I think. absolutely i know we're going to talk a lot more about malcolm murray as the series goes on uh, that's his main introduction though to the show uh, ray do you want to take us on to our next major character in the show yeah, I, I chose, I was just, um, just fascinated, I think, with the Vanessa Ives character. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- straight from the get go, the opening scene, as I mentioned, and it, it's cyclical as well. I mean, her, um, appearance in the first episode ends with the same thing. She's back praying in front of the crucifix, and you have this, obviously, some sort of de- demonic influence with these spiders coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets a lot of airplay, I think, in this episode, which is really good because, uh, as you mentioned, Derek, um, Ethan Chandler is a, is the POV. Mm-hmm. But, um, with Vanessa, we, we get so many, like, hints and clues as to what she may be p- capable of. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, I find that just very intriguing. And it's, a, it's a nice little technique, obviously, for, for the writing to keep people baited, mm-hmm. you know, with characters that are, you know, not totally fleshed out. Uh, and Eva Green, she does a, fantastic job all throughout i think Absolutely. all three seasons yeah um she really brings an a-game she invests totally in the character mm-hmm. uh, and, and i could say that about all the all the actors actually as well um yeah. great performances all around but um yeah as mentioned with with john i find a, a few moments for her um which really did pinpoint it first time when she comes across um, ethan chandler she does almost say sherlock holmes-esque observation of him so she's very intelligent very observant Mm -hmm. um i love that because you know that she's um you know she's come prepared Mm -hmm. um and also then in the in the nest um when she takes well she she stares off that creature Mm -hmm. um a big moment for her but she says a lot of stuff as well um and there's one thing that she does say to ethan chandler there's a scene in the first episode when she's talking about the demi monde Mm -hmm. and she's got the cards coming out and uh, Ethan, Ethan says something like, um, what do you seek to escape? And she says, perhaps the same thing you do. We all have our curses. Mm-hmm. And that's very 
kind of important because yeah. she comes up with these sorts of observations again and again, not only with Ethan, but she says it also to Victor Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So she seems to know a lot more than, you know, than she should know. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And again, that just lends itself to making her quite an interesting character. Yeah, yeah. without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, like she was probably the linchpin of the show at the time. You know, um, Timothy mm. Dalton was a former Bond, uh, but had only done some some minor roles in some things in the past he'd done some major movies after that but getting him on tv was quite a big a big moment for them but eva green was kind of at the height of her stardom when this show started and continued in that stardom josh hartman who plays uh eaton chandler um he didn't have a massive movie career either so i think the first poster that was released for penny dreadful at the time was eva green because she's such an intriguing character on her own and i think you definitely tell that everybody is looking to see who this character is from the first moment she's on board that that first scene with ethan where she's saying to him you know um i can see you have bad shoes bad trousers but an amazing watch so you come from privilege but you don't have any money basically so she can cut him down instantly just by a look you know yeah she was also in a bond uh, as well so again part of this alumni mm-hmm. um but i i completely agree that that line we all have our curses don't we um is probably the line that I would think would sum up the the first season because mm-hmm. it, she's talking in terms of with, with Ethan Chandler and of course with these murders happening there is the suggestion that Ethan is involved uh, in, in this um, you know it's kind of ruled out that it's vampires because they're not drained with blood there's a suggestion that these murders are um, possibly Jack the Ripper yeah. again linking all to, into all this sort of gruesome loveliness of Victorian London mm-hmm. um, and you know effectively the New York of its time so we know that he's got issues and you're wondering as well what are hers um, you know we, we want to know what a superpower in a sense is I feel like she's a conduit uh, of some you know that's why she can do the 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 seance uh, later on in episode two you have the tarot cards but she feels things she gets the you know she can link to to mina um uh, that we see as well and yeah. um, but then she also comes to to malcolm in this episode which is really nice where you suddenly see her sort of transformed into blood red eyes and and, and vampire fangs and mm-hmm. um, but I think they, they, they've all, you know, Victor has got his curse. Uh, you know, he's been cursed. He's been touched by death mm-hmm. uh, in a sense, and he wants to overcome that. You know, Malcolm's is, it's that empire exploration. Yeah. Um, you know, Victor, as I say, death, but that God complex. Mm-hmm. Um, you have even Samembe, maybe in terms of that exploitation, maybe he was involved in selling his fellow tribes people you know that kind of thing that happens um you know that exploitation um of of those relationships amongst or divisions amongst tribes that that was done by white europeans so even vanessa you know it there is a conceit to her as well Mm -hmm. i think um in this they they've got their curses that are in reality but probably um Vanessa's goes deeper yeah. uh, a bit than that, along with Ethan, in uh, that there is a superstition element to it. Here. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about Penny Dreadful as a show as a whole is that none of these people are good people. You know, it comes across quite quickly nah. that none of these people are good people as such. They're just bound together. And I think that's really 
evident with Vanessa. She's bound here. She has to go on this journey with Malcolm because it was her friend. And there's some transgression, something that she's talking about that isn't said. Something about Malcolm that we don't know about in his past, but we know the two of them, regardless of money, regardless of what's going on, and regardless of what what supernatural elements they find, they will continue with this mission to save me not until the very end, effectively. Definitely. There seems to be like a redemptive um, element to it for Vanessa. Mm. Um, as you mentioned, Derek, yeah, one of my points for the main points for Vanessa is this transgression, which mm-hmm. she drops. And she mentions again and again in, in the episode. So it's all about what did she do? What has she done to Mina? Um, why does she want to redeem herself? Yeah. Um, and, and so that's one of actually the main crumbs for her because it, it directly links her to her relationship with Malcolm. Uh, so Malcolm, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, uh, it's um, yeah, it's quite interesting. Can I just say as well at the start where the spider comes down from the cross and kind of almost like rears up to her on her hand is just like kind of a really awesome shot. It is. I don't think I could actually stay there with a steady hand as a spider did that, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, I thought that was a really cool kind of shot actually. But even but even overall, the, those the two comparatives of this character when she's alone in her room. Um, praying and she, she feels like she's fervently praying to, to God effectively yeah. to save her from all the things that she's experiencing. It's just that fragility between those moments when she's alone versus that kind of confidence she has with everybody else around her. She knows more than everybody else when she's in a room with any other person, but when she's alone, she seems just completely fragile and breakable. Um, she seems to want to be saved from all of these things she's experiencing. That's what seems to come across in that first episode. I think that just makes her such a fascinating character to watch. Definitely. I'm going to take us on to our final major character in the show, uh, Victor Frankenstein, played by Harry Treadway. We're speaking about Harry Treadway at the moment over on Star Trek Picard because he plays one of the uh, one of the Romulan villains over there now, and he's he's oh, playing cool. magnificently uh, yeah. on that show. He's nice. really good. It's it's just it's interesting to see this actor at a, at a much younger age now, uh, five or six years ago, playing this incredible character, Victor Frankenstein. So. This entire show is a total love letter to Penny Dreadfuls and to horror stories from the Victorian era all the way throughout the 1900s, late 1800s into the 1900s. And the character of Victor Frankenstein is our first character, really, that we're introduced to that I think most people watching the show will know instantly from the name. They'll go, Frankenstein, I know. Victor Frankenstein, that must be the guy that created the monster, right? Okay, right. So we know him instantly. And I think they just knock you off balance with this character because you feel with his youth that he hasn't started his progression towards reanimating corpses. Um, That's all we really know about Victor Frankenstein. If you think back before this show, right, think about your knowledge of the character. You don't really know much. You know, he created the monster and, you know, the monster was chased down with pitchforks and fire. And that's kind of it. There's no real depth to the character. You know, he existed uh, in that world and in that universe. Whereas what we have here is this brilliantly played character who is just desperate to pierce the veil between life and death. I love the the uh, poetry of that line as well. Um, this concept of this scientist who is invited by Malcolm into this kind of explorers group of scientists, but has total disregard for it because he feels this idea of exploring things that already exist, exploring mountains or going out and looking at space. Those things don't interest him at all. The only valuable science is bringing people back to life and allowing life to become eternal. I think he's fascinating in those moments, especially when he's invited into this circle and doesn't want anything to do with it. All he wants from Malcolm is the money to be able to pursue his actual goal. Yeah, well, he says he explores the difference between life and death, and he has that great 
sort of um conversation with with malcolm in in the explorers club and he says you know that's my river my mountain and mm. where he will place his flag so it, it it's really interesting um you know and again i think we we see that he's a little um you know later on in i think it's in episode three where we kind of get a bit of a flashback to his early life um we we see this um kind of lovely difference between um whether it's science and art or he he talks about science and superstition walk hand in hand or i think that's malcolm murray's line to him which is really uh, an interesting take and and kind of as you say, coming back to say Shelley, this idea of the the new technology of of electricity and, and this idea of being able to reanimate and the possibilities that that science provided in the world, but how that could be used by authors or artists mm-hmm. um, or or poets or whatever to either go against it to try and counter it or to embrace it to see how they could develop a new kind of story i think is is fascinating as well i think that really lies here with victor uh frankenstein's character Mm -hmm. yeah i love how he um is not just your run-of-the-mill kind of scientist doctor Mm -hmm. he does have that inclination towards the the poetic as well because for me he is really like your he is your typical artist you know mm-hmm. he serves a higher purpose yeah. um he seeks patronage from um these these people like sir malcolm but he doesn't like that club he doesn't like that society at all mm-hmm. i mean he looks yeah. so uncomfortable in that club you know <laughs> yeah. and when he was speaking to malcolm he just shot him down like mm-hmm. he was just so intense like i am i am pursuing something far more important than you Absolutely, <laughs> you know yeah. that was yeah. basically what he was saying yeah and um and so he, he would obviously take his money because mm-hmm. he needs it for his research yeah. but yeah so i find him really fascinating in the sense um and again we see yeah later on him with his favorite um poetry or literature that mm-hmm. he goes so he, he does have that that um uh, the heart of a poet yeah in him. As I say, I do love the the line from Malcolm, the heart of a poet on the bank account to match it. I think it's, uh, it makes yeah. total sense for yeah. this character. <laughs> I must say the makeup on this actor, on Harry Treadway, where, the, where he's got the kind of bloodshot eyes and, and massive red bags underneath it, showing that he is so totally consumed by this pursuit that he has to bring a corpse back to life that he hasn't slept in months, it looks like. Mm. you know. And, and when he is dolled up in his in his, uh, his beautiful tuxedo going into this, he doesn't look any better. It doesn't it doesn't improve him at all. Yeah. He still looks like yeah. he ha- he has just rolled out. Well, he hasn't rolled out of bed because he hasn't gone to bed. He looks like he's just, yeah. I've got to do this. I've got to get there. And maybe I'll be able to secure the funds that I need to do this. But it kind of leads on to that moment where he goes back to his hidden lab. You realize he's being followed. We'll talk about that next episode. But he goes back to his hidden lab. And this is our Victor Frankenstein. We have that moment very similar, or I suppose staged quite similar to what we've seen him before. We have the power going out, we have the lightning strike, and we have this corpse that disappears in the room and then suddenly reappears in the corner cowering. Um, I think this is just a beautifully put together and beautifully produced scene because in the past, this has ended with that, with that, I suppose, iconic moment where you have Victor, Victor Frankenstein screaming, it's alive to the, to the skies. Whereas here we have this beautiful music by the, uh, the composer, uh, Abel Kurzanowski. Um, it, it's just beautiful underpinning the sadness of this idea of this corpse who suddenly appeared to life with no knowledge of who it is, what it is, no knowledge of its yeah. history or past. 
cowering in the corner trying to work out what's going on uh, in its life and you have Victor approaching him trying to calm and trying to calm him down uh, and bring him into the world again I just think it's a, a fascinatingly put together scene and it does play into stuff in the future it's really beautiful that first interaction between the two and as you say I think the music is amazing I, I think even just quickly on the music mm-hmm. i think the it is fantastic it, it's it's rich it's sad and you know the opening titles as well i mean I'm, i sometimes get drawn into the music it adds that additional layer of emotional connection to to the piece and you really feel um this the fear in um what becomes proteus mm-hmm. um and uh the, the the fear and the loneliness at coming into this world uh, is, is really good. Yeah. I love the touch as well that as he's alive, then all the stitching starts to bleed. It's mm-hmm. just a nice little detail. Yeah. So you see him on the table and it's all stitched and then he's got he's kind of just covered in blood sort of running down from the stitches, yeah. which is a really nice touch. Yeah, it's a clever nice. touch in the yeah. same way as changing how that first interaction of Frankenstein and his monster uh, and even just the fact that you know he realized I've created a monster uh here it's he doesn't believe that at mm-hmm. all it's that he now wants to sort of bring him forward into this world mm-hmm. he's he's combated death in that sense absolutely yeah i um i'd love that that end scene as well it was really Really well put together, as you say. And, and Derek, I know we've had conversations like years ago. I think it was during the Daredevil, um, Netflix show about mm. music and how music can really make or break a series. Absolutely. And Penny Dreadful is fortunate enough to have brilliant music. Um, mm. it, it just really does, um, tug at the heartstrings and it's very emotional. Yeah. Um, with, with the final scene that I don't know about you guys, I found it really good, exactly as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was so much tension for me as well. I was just waiting for that creature, Proteus, to, to snap or something, you know, yeah, because, it, because he's essentially inhuman, mm-hmm. right? And, and he's just come to life and you just don't know what he'll do. Absolutely. So although there was this very high level emotional, uh, scene, with them kind of communicating with each other, I was just left on the edge of my seat just going, oh, gosh, something better not happen. You know, yeah. something violent yeah. better not happen. I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> so I found the, the ending really, really effective in that yeah. sense, and they kept that tension up. Um, yeah, and, and I'm glad they ended yeah, with that. Absolutely. Ending with the line, I am Victor Frankenstein, you know, because he is. He is now the character of Victor Frankenstein that we all recognize from uh, Mary Shelley's novel. So, um Quickly, finally, on the music, I suppose, just to point out, we watched four episodes of this over the last week, and not once did I ever feel like skipping either the opening or closing credits on this show. The yeah. music is so beautiful together. It's even, you know, after that scene of the I Am Victor Frankenstein, there is a full credit sequence, and I watched the whole thing because the music plays into it, or plays out of the episode and into this, these beautiful credits. So a fantastic job by Abel Kurzaneski uh, for this episode. Um, I think that's it for our main points. We always talk a little bit longer than we expected. So, um, guys, any notes on the first episode? episode of the show yeah for me i just want to mention the flamboyant mr lyle who is the head of the department of egyptian and obsidian antiquities Mm -hmm. of which it's really just egyptian as he says um i i love this character um so much uh flamboyant foppish uh you name it Mm -hmm. you know he 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 drives the the idea of the 
uh, with the hieroglyphics, you know, mm-hmm. bringing in uh, Amunet, Amun-Ra, um, this idea of uh, this blood cure, um, or as they describe it, blood curse, um, from the Egyptian Book of the Dead mm-hmm. um, and the the afterlife. So, you know, I, I love him being pulled in here um for sure and absolutely i love his response to when he's being dragged into it by by malcolm where he's going this is urgent and he goes there's nothing urgent about egyptology just so good and even just you know the the skin um of of, of the vampire when um victor is kind of doing the autopsy on him and it's like this um skin or and the plates of an insect mm-hmm. and i was just thinking of the scarab beetle given that he has those beetles Beetles there um, in, in his office mm-hmm. um, because they're they're good at stripping the flesh. Um, oh, so yes. again, uh, even in, in the comfortable surrounds of the the British Museum, it's kind of the, 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 there's this kind of little bit of grotesque uh, yes. being brought out, which is is really nice. Um, but I love Mister Lyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think actually some of the supporting characters as well are are just so strong and have their impact in the show and he is certainly one of them for me absolutely yeah he he's a really big character i think for me as well he brings a lot of um relief to yeah. the show when there's mm-hmm. a lot of tension um very likable immediately yeah. as well uh in- interesting again um notes i compared vanessa's interaction with him um she's very standoffish towards him she kind of almost shuts him down mm-hmm. um every time she doesn't doesn't have any time for any of his, uh, you know, exuberance about things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I love his, 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 um, dialogue as well. One quote I put here was, he's talking about papyri. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It sounds like something eaten by little Persian boys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like, exactly. Just, uh, just crazy, crazy kind of stuff. And, right. um, just going also, Derek, a note about, uh, Victor Frankenstein. Um, he's so driven, as you said, with the makeup and all that. And mm-hmm. the only thing that really um, brings him out of his um, kind of stupor is when he sees that inhuman body of that vampire. Absolutely. That's the only thing that really gets him. He wants to get those um, Sir Malcolm and Vanessa away from his autopsy or, or his studies, mm-hmm. but she unsheathes the um, the corpse of this vampire, and only then does he actually go okay and he's straight onto it and he starts um dissecting it yeah. yeah absolutely i love i love his description of that where he's saying well either we have a person who's 2000 years old and put hieroglyphics all over themselves and developed an endoskeleton <laughs> yeah. to cover their bodies or and, and have sharpened their teeth or we have something else <laughs> yeah. i love that he is totally scientific about it he is going to investigate this thing because it's massively intriguing for him but i like that he gives them the option to say well maybe that's what it is maybe it isn't something supernatural mm. but obviously he's he's in from there on and um, one final thing that i just wanted to say about the episode uh, a lot of the production for this show as it was a co-production that was done between um, sky europe and showtime in the u.s a, a tv channel and um, they did a lot of production in dublin and ireland where myself and john are, are based and um, it's fascinating at times seeing some of the uh, buildings that they used in the show because dublin's a very small city the population's only about one and a half million people uh, and a lot of these buildings are places we walk past every day they've just been dressed so well yeah to look like they're from the victorian area but there's times when you're going oh i had my lunch over there last friday and right beside <laughs> where where that scene is taking place so it's it's kind of fun to, to yeah i know it, it is good fun yeah mm, but brilliant production design overall did uh you find it detracting in any way to have so such a recognizable building 
uh, architecture around. Weirdly, it's not. Like, I, I literally used to work uh-huh. right beside the place where um, Sir Malcolm's office is or his, his, his house is. Uh, I used to work right beside that and walk past that every day for about seven years. And there's kind of a, a bit of pride that it's still able to be used um, to form part right. of the Victorian era on the show. And it's so, it's so well dressed. Have a look at the extras for the, for the series. They show you how, how the green screen was used and how, how much work was done by the digital effects people to change oh. what is a very contemporary location uh, and just take the element that is uh, Victorian and, and put it into the Victorian setting. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it, it, it's a, a lot of the stuff, a lot is around Dublin Castle mm-hmm. as well. And, uh, and the thing is, is it, it's the interesting thing. I think you see it in this and you kind of go, that feels more real that there would be some kind of life around it um whereas obviously now it's more of a tourist attraction <laughs> and so you, you can't you know dublin castle was used for a purpose um and now it's more of a, an attraction in a sense and it, it's like so you see it being full of life with with market and you kind of go that f- feels like real yeah. it feels like life yeah. is going on there rather than just a visit now um, i will say to to answer ray's question more appropriately i suppose dublin castle is used for about six different locations yeah. in the show and they literally oh. just move the camera around a bunch of times uh to use the different locations but it that is a little bit distracting at times you're kind of going well mm. you know london may be small but it's it's literally not a market uh right beside a person's house <laughs> yeah um, but but it, it I, I think it's still a bit of pride at least you know it's a very short tour if you want to do the penny dreadful tour of dublin yeah and i, I think they use the botanical gardens the yeah. national botanical gardens as well uh, and um dublin zoo in in phoenix park as well exactly so, yeah exactly that's it for our discussion on episode one of penny dreadful nice work we're going to take a little break and after this message, we'll be back with our discussion about episode two of Penny Dreadful, Seance. Hi, I'm one of the high priests of Conchu Ray, and I have the sacred privilege of providing you, the loony listener, with a podcast honoring Marvel's very own Moon Knight. So join me and a host of others at Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or support the show by becoming a Patreon member. Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. It's time to get your conchu on. Welcome back to TV Podcast Industries. We're continuing our discussions about Penny Dreadful with episode two of the series, Seance. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Welcome back, Penny Faithful. Uh, yes, I'm one of your other hosts, John. And joining us again, we have Ray. Hey, guys. How are you going? Very happy to talk about episode two for Penny Dreadful. Mm-hmm. Yes, great to, great to continue this discussion. A healthy discussion on the first episode. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about the second one because this probably still to this day is probably the one that's remembered by most people that watch the series, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Just from that title, we know exactly what it's about, the seance. If anybody wants to find it, if, if anybody goes, right, I need that episode that had the big moment for Vanessa in it. What's it called again? Oh, seance, Grant. I know exactly which one it is. <laughs> uh, this episode was directed again by J.A. Bayona and again written by the showrunner John Logan. John, do you want to give us a summary for episode two sure vanessa and sir malcolm encounter the mysteriously beautiful dorian gray at a party 
However, things take a turn when renowned medium Madame Carly hosts a seance. Meanwhile, Ethan befriends Miss Brona Croft, a young Irish immigrant, and Victor Frankenstein gets a visit from his firstborn. Now, here's the shocking ending you were expecting on the first episode, right? right? <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it's still traumatizing, actually. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Uh, this is a great episode of the show. I just want to start off, really, by saying that this is, it is absolutely um strikes back into my memory that first feeling i had watching the first episode the first time i saw it five six years ago um it really brings back up exactly those same uh, feelings in me those, those same scared oh my god what the hell is happening oh my god this is a show i'm gonna watch until it ends uh, it's absolutely what it did for me well that's it it's like victor needs to work on his stitch work i think if it had <laughs> been just a little tighter uh maybe it could have uh withheld uh the the hands of his firstborn. Because um, then I was thinking maybe you couldn't have played Ring a Ring of Roses because like the centrifugal force would just sort of all of a sudden <laughs> the other person on the other side would just be left with uh, Proteus's kind of <laughs> arms because the stitching. I am so impressed that you've made a Victorian joke on a show. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Very impressed. All Very about impressed. the pox. Uh, this episode we're going to talk about our big moments from episode two. Not as constructed I suppose around individual characters as they were in the first episode. John do you want to take a off with your big moment for episode two of the show i'm so glad i was first on this because i just grabbed it um uh-huh. and yes it is the seance um with um madam carly collected uh london elite and malcolm murray and vanessa ives i mean for me um when i think of this show i do think of, of this seance um i think it is a great moment if not one of the greatest and most iconic kind of scenes um from tv and dare i say even film um, Mm and that i've ever seen it is just one of my favorite scenes um i i have two seance scenes actually that are up there this is one for its um it just scares the bejesus out of you (laughs) um and because it it it's the way Vanessa commands the room mm-hmm. uh, and the performance that just draws you in. And for me as an audience member, I felt uncomfortable. I was wriggling. I was squirming. I was feeling kind of Malcolm Murray's kind of probably idea that he wants to hide under the table, you know, <laughs> effectively as, um, she, she lays bare his, his infidelity, um, that he has with his wife, the death of his son and, and the pressure of Malcolm and what he put on his son and in a sense the ambivalence that um he he gives to his daughter and how Mina sees that um certainly with having the son and I, I just think um you know it's it's so uncomfortable um she absolutely embodies being possessed um she certainly steals the scene from uh madame carly um uh, who kind of you know you, you're thinking um at, at that moment that she's really she, she's she's kind of a, a false seance yeah. that it's just someone coming in she's doing the usual tricks although she is a very important character in her own right uh for season two mm-hmm. so she's not as false as we think in this um for sure. Yeah. But she does feel like it's a parlor trick that she just goes yeah, house ex- to house, whoever pays her the money, and she just kind of shows them kind of 
uh, what a seance could be like. Exactly. What you're right, it is terrifying. I think it goes on for such a long time, much longer than you would expect the possession of Vanessa Ives to go on. And that makes it so, it kind of knocks you off center. Definitely. Um, And I think just quickly, the other seance one is the seance from Good Omens, Mm. uh, which we also covered. And uh, (laughs) that from a comedic point of view is also up there with here, but this just for, for sheer squirminess and and just the power of of Vanessa Ives Mm -hmm. in, in this is just uh, a sight to behold it's great tv yeah yeah john if um if these big moments in the show was part of a, a boxing day sale mm-hmm. you and i would have been grabbing for the same one yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think we all, all would have been going Absolutely. for it um, but i found i thought i'd pick up the um the protea scene at the end mm-hmm. but yeah this seance is is absolutely remarkable i i don't watch that many horror films and shows um mm-hmm. so when i do see a seance like this and someone's possessed and eva green does a fantastic job mm-hmm. it is it is utterly like mesmerizing um with the point with Madame Carly, though, you mentioned, yeah, she, she could be a fake. She does mention, though, like she does sense that someone else is there. So mm-hmm. she does pick up on yeah. on this other demon or being that Vanessa kind of taps into. Yeah. You know, if it's um, – so, uh, yeah, th- th- this was a really uh, fantastic – I can't believe it. Yeah, actually, it went. It did go a bit longer than you'd expect, but mm-hmm. um, you're captivated the whole way, whole way through. Absolutely. And it does reveal, obviously, the the Sir Malcolm um, uh, bits of you know family uh, mm-hmm. history, which yeah. um, which helps as a as a viewer. So yeah. yeah, and and you're wondering how much to trust, I suppose, of the information that she's providing because some of it could absolutely be the demon. Uh, that's possessing her, trying to knock Malcolm off his perch, almost, you know, uh, to tell this room of his peers uh, what he's really like at home kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I really like that. Um, I suppose what I mean about it going on too long as well is you want it to end because it's so bloody terrifying. <laughs> so you're like, okay, <laughs> can is, we just yeah. stop now? And, it's, and it keeps seeping in more and more. I think Eva Green is just transformed in this performance of this role we talked about it in episode one where you have that fragility versus the confidence this is something completely different so she does feel like she is totally possessed by somebody outside of herself in this role so really really good yeah she i mean she makes a noise as well that's just kind of like oh that's Mm, really scary um and and the eyes uh, she also has some pretty fruity language around the table as well, which I think shocks uh, a lot of uh, sort of the polite company in which she finds herself. A lot yeah. of see you next Tuesdays, um, plus, you know, whore and so on yeah. coming out here. But uh, I love the fact that it effectively crashes Mr. Lyle's uh, wee social fate, mm-hmm. uh, as he calls it. Um, again, um, just the the lighter side, because it is so intense, that scene, yet you do have the lighter Mr. Lyle, as you had mentioned, Ray, on, on the last, uh, on se- for episode one. Um, and I, I do like that, you know, for probably obvious reasons, he has a slightly strange relationship with his wife, uh, but he's kind of fairly, uh, a little derogatory by it, but he's, he's kind of, my wife is close by, no doubt by the gin, if mm-hmm. I am to hazard a guess. <laughs> and I think um, hitting the gin would have been a, a useful thing to do here after um, seeing the seance. But again, when he's trying to get everyone together to come into around the table, he has a, a great moment. Uh, and we, we need to use this as well. Pay attention, pay attention, please. You must pay attention to me. I love the fact that he's, he's kind of just wants to hog the, the, 
the air in the room. Mm-hmm. He is this flamboyant um, head of of Egyptology, and I I love I love this character. Yeah. Yeah. Even though his he kind of has hair dye that would probably suit Donald Trump, actually, um, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, again, he brings that lightness to what is a really unnerving scene, mm-hmm. um, and such a, a great one. Um, and I, I yeah. think. Timothy Dalton's, you know, you can, it's kind of this cross between I, you know, need to get out of here because everyone is finding out about his dirty secrets and just the anger. Timothy Dalton does this really good thing where he kind of exposes his teeth a little. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's almost like he's grating his teeth. Um, and you kind of wonder what impact it will have on uh, their relationship. But again, I think as well, it kind of adds a bit more to Vanessa Ives that she can be a conduit mm-hmm. for for these supernatural forces uh, in, in this world. Yeah. 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 Another, like a smaller point to this seance as well, earlier on we were introduced to, to Dorian Gray. And so can you imagine he's just come across Vanessa Ives and <laughs> one of the early things he experiences with her is attending a seance and she just goes um, total cray cray. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think this is a little seed that's planted as well because later on we see Dorian is is quite intrigued with Vanessa. He knows that there are things um, not totally normal with her, um, mm-hmm. and and he's actually the one person that is kind of done one up on Vanessa, where she seems to have the measure of everyone. Mm-hmm. He yeah. seems to have the measure of her as well. Yeah. Um, so just a little um, side thing there with yeah with Dorian at that seance, but yeah. absolutely that that seance is um, totally brilliant. If you just want to watch a little bit of Penny Dreadful, just watch the seance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's enough for, for me. Really, I mean, it's <laughs> really good. I think it will either drive you off or make you watch the rest of the show. Yeah, you'll, <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll be yeah. captivated. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Ray, you mentioned in the notes that this would have been something that is quite usual in upper class society in the Victorian era. This idea of having a seance. It's almost like you know you had a, you used to have a clan um, as the center of your of your entertainment, and then it kind of moved on and moved on and moved on. And at this point, the richest people can afford to have a seance to delight and entertain their audience but if you do believe in the supernatural at all the idea of the seance being the conduit for the supernatural around if you do believe in it the possibility that you're going to draw in great aunt bessie who has a message for one of the kids and that'll be a good laugh for everybody around there's also the possibility that demons can come into the room and possess someone you know (laughs) so so if these people do believe um in this possibility, they've really got the comeuppance here. I'm not sure they'll ever go to another wee fate that has a, a seance after, after this moment. Yeah, and I mean, it, it kind of comes again to that point of the upper class within society doing a seance, mm-hmm. and that you know something maybe in terms of reading cards or, or that superstition being associated with less educated or um, the, the the lower classes in, in, in a sense who mm-hmm. who sort of you know carry the rabbit's foot, have the the crosses around the the rooms, and even that it is going against probably what the church, which is such a a powerful um, force within this world still, Mm. uh, would would say would say this is devil worshipping almost um and with dorian gray you have you know that whole um capturing of him and brona um through the through the the new camera with the lithographs that again high society 
prim and proper, or that's what we're led to expect, yet there is this sort of feasting on the flesh, so to speak, um, of, of the, of the Victorians. Mm. And I think, um, I think that's really good. You know, Dorian is all about excess and the sort of new physical or, or stimulating experiences, not just physical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think to your point as well, Ray, um, he finds a very stimulating person in Vanessa Ives here mm-hmm. that um, is something new and to be consumed um, in, in that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the seance we could probably talk about for quite a while, <laughs> but Ray, do you want to take us on to another major moment for this episode? Yeah, um, I I chose the the end bit, but I want to kind of like broaden that out to mm-hmm. the education of Proteus. Um, oh, yeah. I think that was a massive moment, and I think it was very well done. Um, right from the previous episode, although I did mention there was a lot of tension there, what we see immediately with Proteus is that he's a very, um, very I don't know, he's peaceful. Mm-hmm. Um, creature, um, wanting to learn, uh, benevolent. And I loved how there was this slow education of him with Victor taking him out. Mm-hmm. You see him interact with the, the bigger world, um, and slowly form his own, uh, opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the touching things in, in this whole thing was when he starts to actually remember. Um, and this is just towards the very end where he's at yeah. the docks and he remembers his old life. Mm-hmm. He remembers his, his wife. Um, and so that raises a lot of questions with, I guess, uh, apart from the obvious, a lot of the ethical questions that Victor Frankenstein is kind of crossing the line with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Proteus has this older, older life, comes in through, um, slowly comes through his memories. And yeah, the big moment is, is the end where he is just standing talking to, to Victor talking about his dreams, about what he wants to do, what he mm-hmm. can see, and he literally gets ripped in two by the creature behind him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's one of those moments that um, <laughs> it was so shocking first time yeah. that mm-hmm. I kind of was hesitant to go, oh, do I, you know, should I see this again? I mean, <laughs> I was I was curious to see it again, yeah. um, and I was, like, looking at it with a finer, with a finer lens, mm-hmm. uh, but it was... Um, Certainly the, the big moment, we, we see the firstborn and we know that Proteus was not the first creature that Victor had created, which we all assume, I guess, mm-hmm. yep. or we're meant to assume from the start. Yeah. Um, and he's got a lot more of an evil twist to this, um, this creature. Yeah. I think as I mentioned in episode one, I think the youth of Victor Frankenstein is, is what they're playing with here. You know, mm. as I, uh, as I said, you felt like you were catching him early on in his career before he'd gotten the money, before he'd gotten the resources to be able to, to bring a corpse back to life. So you think absolutely at the end of the first episode that he's gone back and he's finally accomplished his goal. But this reveal here that he's accomplished it before and it didn't go very well um, is, yeah. it is really good reveal. And um, also the way it's presented with a hand coming out from the chest mm. of, of Proteus. Um, you're not sure that there's someone beside, behind him because you can't see uh, the creature at all yes. behind him. You can only see the hand coming out from yeah. inside him. So it completely takes you back. You're, you have that question in your head, what the hell's just gone on here? Is that, is that his own hand coming through? Is it, what mm. is it? And then the reveal that this creature is behind him, uh, willing to take his revenge on Victor. Yeah, it's, it, it is really shocking because you can't, I mean, for me, I, 
I kind of rooted for Proteus here, mm. you know, learning this. Yeah, I absolutely. love where they go out into the world to experience everything. They, they bump into Brona and Ethan, mm-hmm. um, who are, you know, in the throes of first love. Uh, and, and in a sense, so is Victor with Proteus in that he sees his creation. But I also, I think, you know, where he starts to recall those memories, as you say, Ray, where he goes, I had a wife called Doreen, he goes, and, and mm-hmm. suddenly this doubt comes. It's like going straight back to after his first creation. Um, he's suddenly unsure. Yeah. He's not entirely, you know, he asks, what am I? Um, and I think that's a really good. And then he's kind of calmed down and you think, right, okay, it's the next steps on. And then yes, uh, his firstborn comes in and, and sees, uh, puts an end to Proteus, yeah. unfortunately, but it, it is that moment. Cause I, I would just kind of rooted for him. Yeah, it, it was played yeah. really well. Absolutely. I um, think this is something that John Logan is so good at is you mentioned the ethical questions that it brings up, you know, he, he leaves them hanging for you to make your decisions on, uh, on what Victor Frankenstein has done in this, in this episode, we'll get much more in depth into the ethical questions as the show goes on with the creature. Um, but the idea basically is that he's a body snatcher. He's he's stolen this body. He's he without being asked, he's recreated his life and brought him back. And suddenly he starts getting back some some previous memories of his previous life. And that's what makes Victor kind of question maybe has he done the right thing at all? You know, mm-hmm. um, I love how it's played as well. I had it in my notes, but I'll, I'll mention it here. I love how it's played that he's just sitting there humming the song, leave her, Johnny, leave her, and then starts to kind of sing it. Um I recognize that because I'm a gamer and I played uh, a game called Assassin's Creed, which had lots of sea shanties in it. Um, the song itself has a very well-known sea shanty, and I love the recognition from Victor Frankenstein is, well, he's singing that, therefore he must be a sailor. He must have yeah. a connection to the sea, and that's why he mm-hmm. brings him out to the ocean. But none of this is explained on screen. None of this is in conversation at all. It's just left for you to recognize that Victor would know this. Uh, in the In the Victorian era, there's lots of sailors. If Victor hears this, this particular song, he knows exactly a lot of the past of this character and will kind of use that to entice him. Maybe it was Victor bringing him out uh, to those locations where he's able to identify all the ships and uh, and kind of get that spark of his past back. It probably is quite important in, in Victor's research, I suppose. He doesn't want to just... Um, reanimate a corpse that doesn't know anything he wants to bring people back to life um, that's what he wants to do he wants to make sure that life continues everlasting in a way why what's the point in bringing back everlasting life if the person doesn't know who they are so um, but there's loads of nice ethical questions in there as well yeah it makes you wonder also as well because at the end of the the episode with um how, how shall we call him the creature the firstborn mm-hmm. coming yep. through yeah so one of the first things I wonder if Victor must have known this that he's imbued with massive strength like immense mm, strength yeah. uh, something inhuman as well um and yeah I I just I don't know I I wonder then what is his end game with mm-hmm. with this obviously it's curiosity with um conquering death and creating life mm-hmm. but what is his end game what is he doing what does he want Proteus to do? Like as you say, is he leading him towards these um, these locations to have him wonder about or or reignite his past life? But if so, what what purpose would that leave lead as well? Um, yeah. It's it's very very interesting. It it, it does seem um, like he's he's thought of this idea to to create life, but mm-hmm. he hasn't thought beyond that. Absolutely. And and that's where all that's where everything just falls apart because he hasn't thought of the complications. 
like what what's the Jurassic Park quote the um they're too busy uh, concentrating on what they can do and uh, that they don't mm. realize whether they should or not yeah. uh, you do get that feeling that Victor Frankenstein after that discussion in episode 1 you get that feeling that he wants to go back to the explorer society the scientific society of Britain and go this is what I created. Look what I did. Am I better than all of the rest of you? Yeah. Um, that's why he's so focused on this idea because he feels nobody else can do what he can do because he's that smart and that intelligent. Um, but whether he should be doing it or not, well, yeah. he shouldn't do exactly. it. Exactly. But I wonder whether that's teased out more in the first part of episode three. Mm. So I like part of me is, is he trying to bring his, his mother back? In a sense, um, Maybe. Oh, is, is it through? Yes. Is it around that, or that he does have this poetic notion as well? And um, you know, you you have um, in episode three where his firstborn talks. You know, would we be able to understand the um, the universe by an eternity by looking at a daffodil in in respect to Wordsworth? I wandered lonely as a cloud, mm. and. Um, it, it's that he has this notion, and I think it is maybe that god complex yeah, uh, yeah. as well. Mm. But I, I think it, it's related to his his mother. Um, I think. Yeah, we'll probably talk about that yeah. again. But um, I don't think it's as specific as him wanting a particular person back. I think he doesn't want anybody else to experience that very formative experience that he went through. Right. I think that yeah. might be it. It's just something like that. Um, Ray, any more notes on on uh, Proteus at all? Oh no, no, that, that was it. Um, I'm still kind of shaking at the, the last scene. <laughs> at the last scene, absolutely. <laughs> um, I'll I'll go on to a slightly lighter character, I suppose. Um, Brona Croft, played by Billy Piper. Um, I want to talk a little bit about her because I think <laughs> <laughs> you say a little lighter. She is a hooker. Well, true, true. <laughs> yeah. Um, what what I do like about this character, Billy Piper, um, at the time was very well known as being in Doctor Who. Um, she was the main protagonist, I suppose, in the show. She was the point of view character for everything that was going on in the reboot of Doctor Who at the time. So it was fascinating to see her move into this role on this very scary show uh, and be this character that she is. I think the way I described her uh, when I wrote it down was Northern Irish and consumption filled where the basic characteristics <laughs> of of the character but I, what i love is it's a v- fairly typical trope when you have a show or a movie that concentrates on the victorian era they will talk about these kind of hard um hooker with the heart of gold kind of characters that's the way they'll frame uh, what's going on but I, what i love in this show is that it takes the time to explore what her life is actually like yeah what it what it really means to be a character like brona a young woman from northern ireland an immigrant into the uk who's had to leave northern ireland because she was pushed out of it and the reason she's moved to the uk is because she actually wants a job in a factory she thought that this is her way out she's leaving a very small country for a massive city like london thinking she can work in a factory and the industrial revolution hits as she comes over it's taken over and there are no more jobs because everything is starting to become uh, more about mechanization and yeah. less about people being able to get jobs for an honest day's pay so um so because she's a young woman she has taken to using her body to uh, make whatever money she needs to be able to live her life you see that she is very poor um she doesn't have two cents to rub together i love her introduction to to ethan as he's uh, drinking whiskey at the bar also 
great bartender um when ethan says do you have any whiskey <laughs> yeah. and he goes i think the more appropriate question is do you have any money for the whiskey <laughs> yeah um, exactly <laughs> but brona arriving and taking the whiskey off ethan and just drinking it shot for shot with ethan uh, shows you the kind of person that she is and really you can tell there's a connection between those two characters more so than a lot of the other relationships that are going on within the episodes i feel that ethan and brona do have a very kindred spirit between the two of them both have, ha- have done bad things in their past and don't really want to talk about they just want to move on uh, which i think is really interesting but one of the jobs that brona takes is our introduction to probably another one of the most famous characters uh for this show dorian gray um is a character that comes with so much expectation of who he is. Um, the character is based on Oscar Wilde's novel, uh, The Portrait of Dorian Gray. Um, so he is a character who is known as being foppish and beautiful and uh, sexual and uh, in every way that is the way the character is seen. And to see his introduction here, where he just looked completely bored by this rent-for-a-minute hooker who comes in to take some pornographic lithographs for him he just looks totally bored because she's just like every other woman he's seen before but then the consumption hits then the blood hits then the moment where he realizes she's syphilitic and she's also about to die and then he turns into this absolutely horrific character for me you know he's Mm. been this he is a beautiful character the whole point of the character is that he is able to live in the upper classes and gets invited to parties that he doesn't even know anybody at just because of his beauty and because he's the type of person that has orgies and has parties at his own house. Yet in this moment where he just completely tears apart Brona for her disease, effectively, he says he's never, he's never had a dying creature before. Does she feel pain more, more deep than anybody else? He wants to know all about her, but in this really gorish way, um, which just take instantly gives you the type of character that Dorian is. And I think it's great because for the rest of the show, actually, for a lot of the other episodes of the show, the way he talks and the way he interacts with people, he seems like a very, just a very pretty character who just goes about their day doing and getting whatever they want to. But in this scene, because Brona has been developed as this character that you like a lot, I, I took an instant dislike to Dorian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, Again, it's his need for excess, but mm-hmm. it has to be new and stimulating. And as you say, um, like just that moment where she coughs blood onto him, and it's mm. just this. God, they like to do that in the show. Don't y- they? You see, <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. You see uh, that that moment on, on his face where he kind of lights up because mm. this is the, the something new that he isn't bored of yet i mean he is as i think you mentioned it he is almost the victorian equivalent of a hipster and it's kind of like (laughs) avocado on toast has now become passe Mm -hmm. he's kind of like well these massive orgies it's kind of okay you take them or leave them uh but an orgy with people coughing blood on me now that's something different something new yeah and something new um so he he's very you know he's prim proper. He he acts that high society, um, but he is depraved um, and totally about the excesses of the mind, the body, um, and and the, yeah, he's he's a very tough character in that mm-hmm. sense because he's so charming as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just think Dorian Gray. I absolutely agree with both of you as well. But I think what makes him so repulsive 
is his um, total self-absorption mm-hmm. uh, with with this. Um, you know, as you mentioned, John, the excesses, but he has no regard. He has no regard for Broner's condition or how she is feeling with her, um, you know, her condition as well. It's all about feeding what he finds interesting, what he exactly. finds nice. And that is, I think, the core of why he is such a despicable character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and he is all about the excesses as well. But, um, yeah, uh, so I was like you, Derek, as well. I mean, as you say, he's a very handsome, very handsome man um, on, the, on the surface, and this is um, – Pure Dorian Gray on the surface is very, mm. um, very good looking, but underneath he's, he's just a monster, really. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, it was a great introduction to him. Absolutely, absolutely, and just just does anything for himself. It's it's very much it. And I just like the introduction to Brona here. I definitely wanted to talk about this character because I think she's so well played. Yeah. Um. Every time she's on the screen, I think you kind of go, "Oh, hope I hope this week it's going to go okay for Brona." <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope she's going to yeah. get some good news here. Maybe she'll find uh, a person that will take care of all of her needs and take and bring her to hospital and take care of her. But um, it, but unfortunately, she doesn't seem to be that character for a lot of these uh, early episodes, at least. It's really weird when I first watched this as well i really didn't like her northern irish accent it yeah. didn't feel right mm-hmm. yeah, I know what you mean. but in in re-watching it it feels absolutely pitch perfect now i don't know what it was um it's but, living over here for longer john but, yeah well that's probably it yeah i mean it's just like um but and i, I love some of her turn turn of phrases as well mm-hmm. just like oh my lungs are buggered um and so on uh, it's just really nice, but I think her, her accent is really good. Um, but I remember first time round, I was thinking, Oh no, I thought that was actually the weakest part of this series mm-hmm. at the time was her accent. But I, I don't get that at all, uh, in this kind of rewatch at all. The great thing about this series, and we're only delving into episode two, is that there is a, a sizable cast and mm-hmm. all of the characters are so intriguing. The, yeah. the great thing about what John Logan's doing is that he's paying attention to all of them and mm-hmm. none of them seem to – sure, I mean, in this episode and in episode one, Vanessa gets a lot of the limelight, but she, mm-hmm. da- she does take a back seat in the subsequent episodes as well, allows the others to flesh out their story. Yeah. Um, and I think he really does balance all these characters really well. And Brona is uh, – at the beginning as well, I, I found her, like you know – because she wasn't one of the classical characters of literature, I was yeah. the least interested in her. But mm-hmm. she has a very compelling story, um, yeah. and and we'll get to it later on with episode three, definitely episode four. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I really find it quite interesting. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and as you say, I think that's one of the interesting balances that Logan does with this show. Um, effectively, Dorian Gray is not a central character. He shouldn't be. He's not part of the team. He's not going after the supernatural. He is supernatural in himself. Um, he's a peripheral character that is brought in and brought to the forefront whenever is needed. Um, but I do like how they, how they do that with many characters over the course of the show. I think it's, it's really fascinating. Um, that's it for my, uh, my big point for episode two. Uh, any notes we haven't talked about in the episode? Um, I've got a few. Okay. Again, coming back to Dorian's pornography, it sounds like I'm obsessed and I'm not. I, I yeah. can absolutely uh, put that up front, uh, Penny Faithful. Um, but certainly the, episode, the yeah. interesting thing I'm going to pull out of it is that there's a long history of this in, in Victorian society uh, based around Hollywell Street. Um, and it was called the home of the dirty book trade. Nice. Um, and it's just... It's kind of quite nice because as well, Penny Dreadful in terms of the title Mm -hmm. is about these small, almost precursors to comics in a sense, these horror uh, novella Mm -hmm. uh, 
being thrown out and, and we see being turned into to plays um, as well uh, that were consumed uh, sort of en masse, uh, almost like a, a proto uh, magazine. Um, and, and it was sim- same. So just that element uh, for for me there. Yeah, we do get a first mention of Penny Dreadfuls in here, don't we? We hear from yes. the uh, the police officers that are investigating the murders that are going on. They mentioned this sounds like something that comes out of those Penny Dreadfuls. Yeah. Um, so it is something that is a mass market production of little horror stories to scare you before you go to bed kind of thing. Um, so I, I like that they mentioned it within the show. Exactly. Um, and that's kind of the right... There is another attack here in the park with mm-hmm. the lamplighter uh, and the lady uh, eating the apple um, uh-huh. as well. So, again, these attacks that happened uh, in the first episode are kind of continuing. Yeah. Um, there is a really nice moment where we see uh, Ethan at the um, site of the first attack with the police there mm-hmm. um, as well. So, again, just connecting him to that scene yeah. and what curse he he may have i have to say i kept wondering after that opening scene this episode where you see the hand so the arm ripped off and the hand just sitting there with the apple and i was wondering yeah. is this going to be the way the show goes every episode we're going to open with this <laughs> slaughtering of some character that doesn't look like they're going to get slaughtered you know yeah um, is it just, yeah. just going to be that every episode the first episode being you know the, the mother and daughter getting slaughtered and then this episode just a, a woman eating an apple on a bench uh, gets uh, her arm torn off so. um and so Something just around the seance as well um, that, and it connects back to episode one. It's kind of informative again of Malcolm's character, I suppose, uh, where um, Vanessa asks through his son's sort of medium, uh, did you name a mountain after me? And we know the answer is no, mm-hmm. because we, we have in episode one where he says, I named a mountain after myself, yeah. um, despite uh, his <laughs> son dying on that trip uh, through dysentery, um, probably because he needed to be there to prove to his father that he was capable and an explorer. So again, just to like connect that to mm-hmm. to his character, um and I like that. No, I named it after myself. No, <laughs> basically. Uh, so you know, pretty okay, pretty low blow there mm-hmm. from from Malcolm. Um, and then I suppose we do get a little more flesh on the bone of the um, the Egyptian mythology as well. Mm-hmm. This idea that um, it, the co-joining of Amonet um, and Amon Ra forebodes the end of man effectively mm-hmm. um and I, I think Ms., uh mr lyles talks that you know don't tell her this because who wants to know that they're being hunted by the devil mm-hmm. so again you know th- th- this really kind of makes her 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 position so much more precarious um you know and very strong yet external factors making her fragile effectively that you know she's been hunted by something so powerful is she up to that task mm-hmm. we don't know so uh, i thought that was that was pretty nice absolutely yeah i um i i've got a few just here um just further to what john was saying um about those scenes that they with the attacks mm. i found it interesting that they are at the very beginning but you can almost like forget about them because mm. they're so they're at the beginning and there's so much happening in the main part of the episode that it becomes like left on the wayside. But it is good because it, it does keep on bubbling away and, and it does progress the character. Um, yeah. you know, I'm not going to say it now, but <laughs> it just yeah. progresses uh, where that kind of end, ends up. So, um, yeah, I just find, I remember on first viewing, just watching it going, 
it's good because it connects it with Jack the Ripper, but where mm. is this going? It's not really doing much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was I absolutely was wondering whether the show was going to explore who Jack the Ripper was mm. at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. But they have this drop line yeah. in this episode where they go, Oh well it can't be Jack because it's not the same MO. He just goes after any woman or any anybody. It doesn't matter their class or their status. So um so it was kind of going, okay, well, why is this in here then? You know, it would make a lot of yeah. sense if they decided in with Jack the Ripper and that was part of what was going on in the show, but yeah. Well, you have that great moment as well where Malcolm goes to the, the police station and the mm. detective in charge where he says, you need to change your mode of, of operandi because you're, you need to hunt a monster. Mm. Um, you mm. don't need to, detect it's about hunting um you know and as that explorer uh, but he he's the kind of on a recce for himself because that's where we kind of find out that that you know there are no teeth marks in the size of the neck they aren't drained of blood and that actually they've been ripped apart and it's something where we see that is not jack the ripper who effectively uh sliced um and to kill his um his hookers uh mm-hmm. in in uh, soho or I think, or Clerkenwell, or wherever he killed people in Victorian London. You forgot to research that bit, didn't you? I did, yes. (laughs) He killed them in London. Yes. Yes. There we go. Yeah. Uh, And just a couple of things with the the seance. I think, Derek, you touched upon it as well. Very Mm -hmm. popular during the age, and and, um, as you say, John, this underbelly of the Victorian era. but this was more of a kind of was, I guess it was more of a naughty thing to do, as you're saying, like it goes against the mm-hmm. church and it was something quite uh, dangerous potentially. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so table turning or seances were very common. Mesmerism or they used to call it animal magnetism was right. um, very a popular thing there where people would be almost possessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and funnily enough, this was a precursor to the, the Ouija board, right. um, which I didn't realize, but yeah, that got its origin from a, a board game from Parker Brothers. Um, mm-hmm. So for those of people that stand <laughs> by the Ouija board and, and believe it, um, it was a board game. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's become something bigger. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Created by the people that brought us, uh, brought us Monopoly afterwards. Yeah. Yes. No, I was going to say, <laughs> exactly. Trivial Pursuits as well. Trivial it's from the yeah. Parker Brothers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, what yeah. a diverse uh, board game range they have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. Absolutely. Uh, and just finally – um, sorry, with uh, Amonette and Amon Ra, I, I did a bit of digging. I thought this sounded really cool in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, with the mythology, it doesn't extend to that. Although she, uh, Amonette and Amon Ra, were the one of the first gods or deities of, of Egyptian culture. Mm-hmm. Um, Amonette gets replaced by M- Mut, or Mut right. um, who becomes the main partner of Amon Ra, and uh, Amonette is more a, a protector of pharaohs. So she's still known as the hidden one, but yeah. um, there's no dark side element to her. There is a, a there is an easy to consume uh, history of, of this as well called the Mummy, the film. Oh dear. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so if anyone wants kind of the lighter hearted sort of look in Amonette and Amon Ra, mm. it is the Mummy series. Uh, one sh- of my favourite sort of trashy kind of. Films. It's not trashy. It's just good fun. No. It's very trashy. I'm not too sure how historically accurate it is. Either. Probably not at all. <laughs> but think, it's good fun. I think they may have just kind of pointed a finger, found a name in, an, in a book, and then created a history for, for the show. Uh, That's it. That's our discussion on episode two of Petty Dreadful Seance. What a great episode that was. Definitely. Um, I think one of my, my favorites ever. 
And as I say, the Good Omens version of the seance uh, from a comedic point of view, uh, you should definitely check out our, our coverage of that because I have to say, I just couldn't stop laughing, uh, yeah. which is the complete opposite <laughs> of, of this one. Um, and they are two of my favorite seance scenes ever. Mm-hmm. I think there may only be two, but these are really good. <laughs> yeah, um, a, yeah, very strong episode. I think to follow up from the first episode, which really has to set the bar, mm. uh, for the second, this episode to raise the bar even higher is, is a, an immense thing. So, um, it, it really bodes well for the series if you watch it from beginning to, to end. Absolutely. The journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's see how episode three compares. We're going to take a little break and we'll be back with episode three. Hi, this is Derek from TV Podcast Industries. We hope you're keeping safe and well at this time, and hopefully we're providing a little bit of entertainment to get you through some of the boredom that comes along with uh, what's been going on at the moment. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd love if you subscribe to us at tvpodcastindustries.com, or you can support us by going over to patreon.com slash tvpodcastindustries. You can also support us by leaving a review on your podcast catcher of choice, or of course, you can share the podcast with any of your friends, because sharing the podcast is sharing the love. Remember, we've covered many, many shows over all the years that we've been podcasting. We've covered things like Gotham, The Boys on Amazon Prime, we've covered Pennyworth, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Agent Carter, Luke Cage, Iron Fist. So if you've enjoyed the coverage that you've been listening to, hopefully you'll check out some of the other shows that we've done. And we've got lots more to come. And thank you, as always, so much for listening. Welcome back, Penny Faithful. We're here talking about episode three of Penny Dreadful, season one, Resurrection. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hi there, Penny Faithful. As uh, I am one of your other hosts, John. And uh, I'm... I'm Ray. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Our third co-host, Ray. Yes, uh, yeah, really good. I'm not too sure whether this Penny Faithful is is tripping off everybody's tongue as as it normally does. There's a lot of peas. There is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of peas. But sure, yeah, faithless. Or I I did think of saying dreaders, mm-hmm. uh, but then. People might think it's dreadlocks. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Or um, I think I think we were talking earlier on about uh, about dreadful listeners to the dreadful podcast, which uh, yes, we don't ever want to call our listeners dreadful. Do we? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> we no, can call our no. podcast dreadful as a joke because we think the podcast hopefully is quite good. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, but we get the joke, so it's okay. Yeah, no uh, feedback on that point. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's jump into our discussion on episode three. Uh, this episode was directed by Irish director Dervla Walsh. Um, we discussed her work back on the Punisher season one she directed episode five okay yes i remember that because uh i think yeah we were just like going dervla is one of those names that is so unusual in terms of how it's spelt and Mm -hmm. how it's pronounced um very typically uh sort of irish as well in that sense (laughs) exactly and as we mentioned before a lot of the show was filmed in ireland so uh so getting in a local director like derva was quite quite cool she uh, kicked off most of her career back then but really good to see that she's still working you know five six years on she's still working in these hollywood tv shows uh most recently she directed an episode of handmaid's tale as well so um likes the dystopian uh likes the dark like uh, (laughs) like punisher so uh nice to have her yeah definitely and also just speaking of irish names what we didn't mention possibly oh, in the yeah. previous episode is Brona is Gaelic for for sadness, oh. uh, and of course, oh, okay. her storyline does get sad. Yes, for sure. It does. Yes, it does. Um, uh, yes, uh, the the term for I'm very sorry is uh, is Tabron Urim, which is I have sadness on me, is the literal translation of that. So Brona does come from that. 
I do feel sorry for any child who may have watched this show and has the name Brona and realized that their parents were obviously very unhappy to have their first child. <laughs> <laughs> that's Brona. That's, that's really harsh, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's a harsh truth. My gosh. Isn't it? Uh, once again, as we mentioned before, these episodes are being written by John Logan, the showrunner for the show. Um, John, do you want to give us a synopsis of what happens in episode three, Resurrection? Sure. A flashback reveals Victor Frankenstein's motivation for delving into the questions of life and death. Flashbacks also show the history of Victor's firstborn. The creature was born in a state of unending agony, and Victor fled, rejecting his creation. It eventually came into contact with actor Vincent Brand, who gives him a job working with the stage equipment and rigging at the theatre. He has a very particular request for his maker, a female companion. After her experience at the seance, Vanessa continues to have a spiritual link with Mina, who is desperate to be saved from the creatures around her. It leads them, including Ethan Chandler in need of money, to London Zoo, where they have an encounter with wolves, among other creatures. Yes, London Zoo, or um, the Phoenix Park in Dublin Zoo. Yes. One or the other. It still looks like a Victorian zoo at the time, so uh, so they, it's a nice a nice location for that scene. Uh, and also, a really interesting moment here with Ethan as he uh, as he quells the uh, oncoming wolves, the oncoming pack. Um, hmm. Indications of where this show might be going in the future. Yes. Yeah, th- there's mm. really, really uh, now a kind of push yeah. with Ethan's character, I find, I find with this as well. I mean, it's been very ambiguous to begin with. Um, but yeah, this we kind of start to get a sense of what might happen. Mm-hmm. Everybody has their curses, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, anybody else jump out of their seat with excitement when you saw the creature asking for the bride of Frankenstein? Anybody else go, oh my God, that's the way they're going to go with this show. That's awesome. I did. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, yeah, the, the whole interaction between Victor and, and the creature was mm-hmm. just very reminiscent of of the um, Mary Shelley um, story, classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it was um, Rory Kinnear. He's a, a brilliant actor, I find. Yeah. He's, um, yeah. yeah, really good. He's yeah. had so many wonderful parts uh, as, as the years have gone on. So Absolutely. many things you see him in and so many things you've seen him in before this. Like, he's almost unrecognisable mm. uh, as the creature in this show. But Rory Kinnear has been in uh, lots of James Bond movies. Uh, he's been in, yes. in the wonderful show Years and Years in 2019. Um, he's just one of those characters that are one of those character actors that appears in so, much, so many things. But this is almost iconic as a role. Uh, for him the, the seasons he spent on this show um, let's get into our big moments for episode three john do you want to kick us off with your big moment for the episode yeah and speaking of years and years although not the tv show mm-hmm. uh the the band um it is ollie alexander who plays mr fenton mm. um again it is i'm underestimating how much i love this character mm. played by o- ollie alexander um, I, there's something just captivating in terms of that pale face that happens right at the end of the episode emerging, uh, from the darkness oh, of, yes. of Malcolm Murray's cellar mm-hmm. to kind of herald the arrival of his master as he sort of speaks to the darkness. Um, it's just a mm-hmm. great, uh, bit of filming. Um, and I really like how, uh, it, it's played, um, because, with miss with the arrival of mr fenton uh, as a prisoner chained up in uh, in the cellar he basically inserts doubt into this this company he sows division and disruption um amongst the group um because of the violence expressed towards him by by malcolm and um, like we just have this um 
uncompromising sort of beat down of him by mm. Malcolm Murray. And again, it's something that's uncomfortable to watch. I, I think that's one of the great things about this series in, in terms of language, in terms of sexuality, in terms of um, all these, they really do not shy away from any of it. They, they allow it to speak for itself and uh, because it is a part of the world. Um, and it's really uncomfortable to watch. I do like the fact that um, Fenton does lick up his own blood that mm. is flowing from his mouth from this beat down. Uh, I, I've kind of put, don't waste a drop, you know, right. this kind of, mm. ooh, can't waste it, um, which is good. Kids, remember, always <laughs> clear your plate. Um, <laughs> no, always clear, clean your plate. <laughs> always eat up those greens. Um, and... I, I I love this, and the, the uncomfortableness here is, you know, it's projected through Ethan, mm-hmm. and who questions really, uh, you know, what are we doing? We we're, it's almost it's torture, and then this idea that they're going to experiment on him uh, as well. But just going back a bit as well, I've probably gone slightly too far in time. You know, he's captured at London Zoo, mm-hmm. where because of Vanessa's kind of connection with Mina, she she's the sounds there, and she connects it with London Zoo. And um, Fenton has decimated the monkey population, it would seem, chewing on, on the poor monkeys in London Zoo. But that's where he's captured. He has by... exotic tastes. Point, <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, and he's just, um, yeah, he is a servant to his master. Mm. Uh, and his master has effectively got him inserted as this mole into Malcolm Murray's house. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's really, really nice. I think there's, uh, in, in any case, you know, when they're in London Zoo, they all have this feeling that something's not right. Certainly Vanessa, she kind of connects in with that. Um, and again, there needs to be a compact formed here uh, as they move forward because uh, of, I suppose, the aggressiveness in which they're treating Mr. Fenton. Um, and, you know, one by one, they all kind of nod to Malcolm as he suggests, you know, we have to move forward as one if we are to move forward. Mm-hmm. But Ethan doesn't really connect him with that group, but he just points to he kind of looks at Vanessa and says I'm with you mm. um which is a really interesting distinction uh, for this character yeah. um and and Vanessa though is the one that kind of drives this idea that she is happy with what's happening to Mr Fenton um as well and sort of propels Malcolm to this idea of making sure everyone else is happy with it in a sense or agrees to it um but then after Ethan has come on board, you know, she does turn to Malcolm uh, and in front of everyone kind of calls him out for maybe slight uh, duplicitous underhand nature because um, th- this idea that maybe Mina um, really is is tricking uh, Vanessa here, that he thought something wasn't right. Um, and I-, I liked that a lot because this, this kind of... The, the group doesn't splinter, but there's clear divisions um, of those who who will kind of act on, on Malcolm Murray uh, uh, and his word. And then there's Ethan, you know, as the American, as the outsider, mm-hmm. he, he has this different take. Um, and I, I, I thought this was all really, really fascinating. And I just think the way Ollie Alexander plays Mr. Fenton, because he's the driver on this, yeah. really, at, you know, you just completely buy into it. I mean, I think his turn of phrase, uh, I love the fact 
um that he he goes um well i i, I know the name vanessa mm-hmm. uh, so he 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 knows about vanessa ives and everyone's why how is that mm-hmm. you know again he's he's troubling he's um he he upsets the apple cart here and yeah. that is is really good i think another another character the use the youthfulness of fenton um the it's another interesting thing about him he's supposed to be kind of the street urchin on the streets of of the victorian era mm. and he's been brought in to be this monster effectively so there's almost that point where the rest of the characters want to save him from from this uh, affliction that he has because he is such a young a young kid effectively but he's actually got a violent tongue on him and he's got a violent yeah. uh, reaction to everything that's going on. He doesn't want to be saved from this. He knows he's now immortal. He knows he now has this power in him that none of them have. And I love how he plays it. He's such a fascinating kid on screen. Yeah, I think I think if you eat monkeys, I think it's pretty hard to, <laughs> <laughs> hard to save that person. Uh, no, uh-huh. re- really good. Really good performance by, um, by Ollie Alexander as well. And, and a point mm. of interest for his character, Fenton, because... Um, again, it's, it, it pricked my ears because, again, that's just like one step closer to, you know, the big bad Dracula. Um, so it's, yeah. it's alluding to that again, uh, cause he's very much featured in, in obviously Bram Stoker's Dracula and, and in yeah, prior right. movies. Uh, so yeah, very, um, very interesting to see him in here. Uh, and yeah, the dy- dynamics with the team, it, it starts to kind of, you start to see where people, are forming their, I guess, alliances with. I find it very interesting mm-hmm. that Ethan and Vanessa, um, Ethan's kind of drawn to her. I think maybe because she's the one that kind of recruited him. Um, there's something yeah. there, and and that's just the the start of. Um, we'll see it later on in the episodes, but uh, there is a dynamic between the two. I mean, we saw it with mm-hmm. the um, with Vanessa telling him about the de- demi monde as well. So um, there's uh, yeah, there's just something there that I found quite interesting how he sides with her. Although what you're saying as well, um, she may have been influenced by Mina. She, she she's actually. Um, promoting this sort of behavior towards Fenton. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, that's um, quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I, I like that, that moment around the fireplace where, you know, they, they kind of form this compact, um, you know, in, I think Malcolm says it's not for the weak or for the kind. Um, but, you know, you have a bit of a standoff between uh, Victor and Ethan as well. You know, Ethan kind of this hostler, sort of very confident, this gunslinger. Mm-hmm. Um, and Victor being this sort of almost sensitive poet and, and scientist. Um, but Malcolm again says, it's surprising to see you suddenly averse to violence to Ethan. And, and, um, Victor just says that's because it's not towards the Indians uh, in, in oh, yeah. North America. <laughs> and he has a, a really interesting line that, you know, yes, you pacified the Red Indians to extinction. It's just that kind of mm-hmm. um, whole notion. And so Ethan has this issue with Fenton, but again, it's his dark past. And maybe it's because he has kind of moved on, regrets, has this... Uh, regret around what's happened mm-hmm. but also then the suggestion that he is somehow involved with these these brutal um sort of murders that are happening across london as well um and certainly with what happens in london zoo uh with his 
um, his moment with that lead wolf. I presume it's a wolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it, yeah. it is really good to, to, to suggest there's a bit of, uh, lycanthrope, uh, within him, dare I say it. <laughs> he could Spoilers. Be, <laughs> he could be part Aussie as well. I mean, I've got a, I've got a very crocodile <laughs> Dundee vibe with him just doing the, uh, taking down the water buffalo. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, he's just he's just well trained with animals. Just that's all. Uh, he's a he's a dog whisperer, a dog handler. There yeah, you there you go. Walkies. Um, overall, that's it. That's it for Fenton. Yes, it is. But I think just my f- final part on this is, you know, I I really wanted to add Mr. Lyle as well because I think the sporting cast here, they all have their moment, and I think none more so than Fenton. Mm. He's in two episodes, and I absolutely adore this character. Um, and I've never really been drawn to the character in the other movies or anything like that. Um, there's something that's pulled out here. The, the, the creepiness that, um, Ollie Alexander plays him, um, is so good. And again, I, as I say, it's another enduring image from the show for me yeah. is his pale face in the darkness calling out to his master. Mm. And mm. it's, it, again, I don't want to say iconic. I've already used that for seance. But mm. for me, it's just so, so good. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, I, and I, I kind of get drawn into that. It's with music, with the imagery of it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a big player for me. I, I kind of, I don't know whether I'm one of these people that uh, literally does not judge a book by its cover, but I buy a book because of its cover. Mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of like attracted towards that kind of thing. And and here, the Dervler and in, in terms of what John Logan have done with the writing, that they've, they've produced this this character that is both a nod to the original book, but they feel to me as though they've just brought him on so much more as mm. to how he inserts himself into this show for two episodes yeah. and. Uh, that disruptive element to this group. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really good. Absolutely. Um, Ray, you're going to talk about another new character in your big moment. Yeah, I um, I thought I, I was really um, taken with Vincent Brand. I thought he was mm. really um, – he brought a lot of warmth to this uh, episode. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Much of this episode was – about the journey of the creature, um, one of the I just want to call it out now. One of the big uh, scenes that I really enjoyed was the birth of the creature. It was it was horrific, um, just screaming, blood covered, yeah. um, reaching out towards Victor. It was really a, a, a terrifying kind of scene, and I thought again, brilliantly Absolutely. done, brilliantly shot. Um, but we yeah. see a lot of struggles that the creature. Uh, he is basically abandoned, uh, but he is taken under the wing of uh, Vincent Brand, who, you know, doesn't mind a little tipple himself. Um, he doesn't care about, <laughs> about you know, appearances. And there's mm-hmm. something warming about him not yeah. discriminating at all, this this yeah. individual. And uh, so he gives... Um, he gives the creature a purpose and gives him a, a home mm-hmm. and... Uh, I thought he was a very interesting character. I'm glad that there's more to him we see in the in the subsequent episodes as well. Um, yeah. But, yeah, the big moment was this turn turn of face of uh, of the creature who could could have easily gone down the path of a, a murderous, um, you know, bloodthirsty monster, but yeah. he's actually turned around and um, is quite industrious working in the theatre. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
what does he say? He says, I, I discovered kindness and, and found a home. Um, uh, it's, yeah, uh, it, it is a really nice, uh, moment. Um, I think the other thing that touched me on, on this was were, um, as you say, Ray, where, where, uh, Vincent says, um, you know, he takes him in, but he says, this is a place where the malformed find mm. uh, a place where the different can take flight. It is the theater. Mm-hmm. I think personally, I find that quite important. I think, you know, in terms of, the diversity in, in, in the arts. And I, I think it also connects with um, Mr. Lyle in, in the sciences as well, mm. that his eccentricity, his flamboyancy um, probably wouldn't be tolerated down the mine or in the steel uh, furnace or, you know, in, in the cotton mill. Uh, but it, it is where they can thrive in that time as um, people of whatever you know, Vincent calls them, says malformed or of different persuasions. And I, that is, um, and in terms of, you know, that kindness element. Mm -hmm. And it's also nice that that the show provides that, I think as well, like the lighthearted moments, uh, because otherwise we get a lot of blood. Yeah. It keeps the balance to the show. Absolutely. I think that's a very important line as well, because with it, he, he just assuages anything that the creature may have feared or or may have doubts with, and it's it's just such a um, comforting thing to say, I find, and, and yeah. Uh, yeah. So again, it just again it just shows Vincent Brand to be just basically a really good dude, and, and I really like yeah. I really yeah. like that. So yeah, it, it's just that instant instantly welcoming type of character that he is, and I think mm. it's really important because again, remember these are all love letters to penny dreadfuls and the the simple nature of the penny dreadful is you know three pages in you meet the monster and then by the end the monster is defeated that's kind of the the central premise of it uh here we're introduced the creature in such a violent way in episode two and we hear his backstory here and how he's how he's been created and to have that moment where somebody looks at him and isn't seeing him as a creature for the first time um because he's not going to judge him um is a really important facet of the show overall you know mm. this idea that you can't just look at somebody and go they're that type of person that's the type of thing they are you know uh, if you think about one of the biggest monsters in the show really is dorian gray as we said before and he's got a beautiful look to him uh, as opposed to someone like the creature who has got a beautiful mind hidden behind this uh, visage that was given to him by victor frankenstein basically yeah, sewed together and, and, and he was stuck with it kind of thing and mm. um, that kind of leads me on to my big moment really for the episode because i'm also going to cross over a little bit with your point Ray, because i think the history of this character the creature uh, who is not named uh, as of yet um a, a very big point for him really is that uh, proteus the other version of the reanimated man that uh, the victor frankenstein uh, created was named very quickly chose his own name for himself whereas the creature is left being the creature um i love the battle of wills between these two characters as well as each one of them calls each other demon um, i love that they choose the same term to describe yeah. each other you know and it's just all about perception for each one of them and understandably the perception of the creature to frankenstein is that he is a total monster because not only was he brought back to life without asking for it, he was left alone because he was scared and screaming in the lab and scared off Victor Frankenstein, who left and moved to London, left him behind in his lap, locked the door behind him and ran off to London, you know? Um, this, it, this person that wasn't allowed to have any moments of, uh, of explanation as to what he was doing there is just left alone with a pile of, of poetry books, a bed, 
and that's it. And he had to learn to see who he was. He used the, as I said, the window to the world um, in, in the room to see what was going on outside until he felt comfortable enough to leave and comfortable enough to create his own persona. And I think that juxtaposition within his language and his tone as to the the way that he's created is such a, a, a great character, I suppose, the way he's able to match Victor Frankenstein in terms of the language he uses and the poetry he uses because he spent st- time studying the things that Victor Frankenstein was in love with. He seemed to be hopeful that he was going to impress his creator when he eventually met him until he realized he was being left alone by this awful, awful man, basically. So, uh, so that's where he's developed as a, as a character. And I think it's, it's a really great take, uh, on, on the creature, on the monster. Yeah. Yeah. I think with that interaction between Victor and the creature, you still mm-hmm. get behind the creature after, even after what we saw in episode two, what he mm. did to yeah. Proteus. It's yeah. a very, um, fascinating thing that he's that we actually turn around and we I was I wasn't say rooting for him but he was making mm-hmm. very compelling points to Victor absolutely um, and yeah. and it paints a really bad picture on Victor as well like what he did yeah. basically abandoning like how would you feel if you entered the world and the first thing you saw was yeah. someone running away and and you being abandoned that's he said something along those lines. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you think about it, like, you know, the birth, the birth of a child. Um, mm. most children, as they come out of, uh, uh, and enter the world, the first thing they may do is cry. If you were most people and you're having your first child, the cry of a baby is not the most wonderful thing in the world, <laughs> right? So, yeah. uh, would you run away and leave the baby behind, uh, as it's just entered into the world? <laughs> not many people would. You know, Victor chose this. Victor yeah. was the one that created, um, this reanimated man and then ran off and left him because he came into the world screaming, Oh no, uh, that's not what I wanted. I want to have someone I could talk uh, poetry with, you know, mm. probably not the best way. Um, yeah. But it and is interesting. It is the notion of, you know, families uh, and that you, you come together. Mm. It's, you know, it's the pride of lions, the pack of wolves, the, the human family in a sense. Uh, but it's also that there are people that don't have that. Um, and mm-hmm. you see it in nature that I think, what was I watching recently where, you know, a bird that's like i don't recognize you as my chick if you're not on the nest mm-hmm. or something like that with this though it's probably just what have i created it's that abomination but i like that that motivation is the monster says you know my first experience was to experience rejection from mm-hmm. my creator effectively yeah, exactly. um and i thought that was uh, really good. I really like the fact as well that, as you were saying, they both are calling one another demon. And obviously, you know, who is more demonic, the monster or the person that created the monster mm-hmm, yeah. in that sense? Um, but I like the fact that Vincent names him Caliban, um, the, from, from, uh, uh, Shakespeare, um, which is a really nice moment. You know, the person that gives him and discovers kindness. Um, or allows the monster to discover kindness gives him a new name, mm-hmm. um, which is, is nice, um, as well, yeah. I think. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder moving forward, do we call him Caliban, the monster, That's demon? So any one of those three, I reckon, <laughs> is, is good to Caliban's go. Caliban's definitely more polite. Yeah. But while I do side with him in this argument with Victor Frankenstein, um, there is also a sinister side to him that we can't ignore. Um, there is that moment when they're having that discussion, um, between between the two of them and the creature has realized his nature i suppose um he realizes that immortals are the future because everybody else dies and they don't uh 
people like him, people who are, who are created and don't die. Um, I love that he compares himself to the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. He says, mm. people like it's me good, yeah. are steam engines and modernity coming in to flatten the rest of you, effectively. So uh, we will outlive everybody else. And that's why he makes his request. That's why he makes the request for somebody else immortal, a bride of Frankenstein that can live through the life with him and will be a companion to him because everybody else is going to die and he can't live eternally without a companion. I just think it's a, a really good positioning of that of that central part of the Frankenstein mythology, I guess you call it. Yeah, I, I think this is really interesting. I love uh, how he phrases it as well. You know, again, it comes back to the just the dialogue in, in this show uh, where he goes, you know, I am modernity personified, not mm. the antique pastoral age. And I, I, I really like that because, um, you know, Victor is a scientist, but he's also... A romantic poet, um, Caliban absolutely goes with "I am modernity," yeah. "I am the industrial revolution," "I am the scientific revolution" uh, that will move you to one side, um, and I think that's really important in in this period. And it's kind of why I like this show. It, I, it's why I like uh, sort of books from this period because of the social upheaval and change from the industrial revolution yeah. urbanization all this kind of stuff uh, but also within science you know you had that moment where the arts and sciences were connected it mm -hmm. was vickers studying the universe through their telescopes or it was doing anatomy mm -hmm. um, and that's gradually split where you have these two distinct groups. Uh, there, there's a book called Two Cultures about this, which is, which is fascinating. Um, and it, it's Caliban has made his choice. I am modernity. I am science. I am, science, mm -hmm. I am industrial. Uh, Victor is almost still of that time where he could conceivably be a poet as much as a scientist or a, a vicar in, <laughs> you know, the parish church doing experiments. Yeah. Um, and I, I find that really interesting uh, here. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like how he's so confident of his place in this new world uh, as, as the demon. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that dichotomy between uh, Victor as the poet and the monster as modernity. I, I didn't pick that up, but I'm, mm -hmm. I love it. And I like how, uh, as you mentioned, Derek, he sees himself as the steam engine and, and, you know, part of the modern age. Uh, it really does mm -hmm. give it a, a nice little, little spin to it. What you were mentioning, Derek, about the bride and how Caliban is not totally, you know, benevolent as well. Mm -hmm. I find it, it's, it's something from the book, but it's obviously translated over here as well in the fact that he's so alone, right? So you can still sympathize with him. Because he is mm -hmm. an immortal, he needs someone, but he is, in effect, asking Victor to curse someone to to yes. live that mm -hmm. that terrible life as well. Previously, what I mentioned about Dorian Gray in, in the previous episode about him just being kind of self-absorbed and not really caring about the other person's feelings, it's mm -hmm. kind of like that here with, the, with Caliban. Yeah. Although in this instance, you can relate to him because if he's going to be wandering the earth like Melmoth, you know, um, just mm -hmm. for, for centuries, he'd want a company. He wanted a companion. Absolutely. So, um, so very, Absolutely. very complex character. Um, and again, testament to Shelley's brilliant, brilliant story. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And again, you know, you, a massively complex character. 
based on something that, you know, what's our image of Frankenstein? You know, the bolts in the neck, rah, 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 I'm going to kill the villagers is basically all we have from, you know, Scooby-Doo all the way through to, to the movie <laughs> versions of this character. It's the, the monster has never been someone that you would sit down and say, have a poetic discourse with mm. about uh, the future and the past and, and uh, science and modernity. You know, it, it, I, I love how, how they've twisted that once again for this show. Um, really good. Yeah, that's that's my, my big point for this episode. Any, any notes left? Absolutely. Uh, just further to that last point as well with the creature, Frankenstein's monster, um, reference mm-hmm. to Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein with Robert De Niro. That was a very, right. I found a very great um, or intriguing depiction of the monster by, by De Niro. Um, a lot, mm-hmm. for me, a lot more terrifying than, than Caliban here currently. Yeah. But, yeah. um, but still had the same sort of sympathy, um, with his, with his plight, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, sticking with Caliban, one of the quotes from, the episode uh, was very reminiscent to me of Shelley's novel. Uh, he says to Victor, right. you have not known horror until I've shown it to you. Um, very, a very deep threat, I think, as well. Yeah, and that reminded me yeah. of um, this beautiful quote from the, the novel. Um, I have love in me, the likes of which you can scarcely imagine, and rage, the likes of which you would not believe. If I cannot satisfy the one, I will indulge the other. Um, just uh, beautiful, yes. beautiful yes. writing. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And also just to sort of continue that, I think, Ray, as well, there's a really nice line from Victor. Uh, he goes, if you seek to threaten me, threaten me with life. Um, <laughs> this idea that he, he, you know, he would embrace death, um, in a sense. Yeah. Um, and I, I think one of my notes is, you know, I think the young Victor, um, Obsessed by death is probably not right, but just impacted, influenced by by death from Bradshaw, his dog, um, mm. and I, I like the way they walk through the the daffodils again. Another little nod to Wordsworth, yeah. um, and then coming across the maggot-ridden Bradshaw, yeah. um, and then his mother who coughs a hell of a load of blood up onto the the young uh, Victor. I think that would probably uh, destroy my life as well. I'd oh, yeah. probably kind of whether I'd go the same way, but yeah, again, another <laughs> load of blood in the face um, yeah. from, from his mother. I know, I know so, it's a weird thing to point out, but the next scene for him to be wearing a white shirt after that, <laughs> yeah. I thought he, I thought he'd probably choose something different. Yeah, a red I, shirt. Maybe. I never, yeah. ever want to wear a white shirt again yeah. after that moment. <laughs> um, and the, the grand Gwingnall theater um, that he, um, that, Caliban finds as his home um, from Vincent um, is reference, I think, to the theatre of the same name in Paris, which was very well known for um, graphic and amoral horror shows. Right. Um, it was something that the, that Vincent Brand um, says. He goes, oh, "It's all Ibsen now, um, like the the Cherry Orchard and so on." Uh, whereas he then starts talking about Shakespeare, which you know has got Titus Andronicus, mm-hmm. which I think when my mum went to see it at the Globe in London. Um, it used the most amount of blood ever on a theatre production uh-huh. uh, because it's so violent. Um, yeah. I, I like the fact that he's saying all all this kind of new fluffy stuff where you've got the raw Shakespearean sort of horror, sex, fear, death, all this, and and he brings this together in this 
what maybe the rest of society thinks uh, as this amoral horror show at the Grand Guignol Theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of, I think, explains why in episode four you have Vanessa, Dorian, uh, and Ethan in there. You know, it, it, it's not um, the polite theatre company Absolutely. that you think. This is something much more raucous, yeah. much more yeah. kind of visceral. For everybody. I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It's the equivalent of the midnight showing at the cinema to yeah. the 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 crap the crappy film, <laughs> you know, like I don't know, yeah, Children of the Corn Four, <laughs> the Urban Harvest. One urban harvest. It is one of my it is one of my favorites because it's so awful. Excellent. Any other notes on the episode, guys? Uh, just one final thing from me as well is that you know we do um, learn here that the. The creature we see, because Malcolm Morris says, uh, wants you, not Mina, to Vanessa. So again, it's this idea that maybe, you know, that Mina is this false trail. Right. Um, that, you know, that, that duplicitousness of, of Malcolm, that he's kind of thinking it's not about his daughter. It, it could be about Vanessa. Mm. Um, and I think we, we get a bit more of that from the next episode that we'll be looking at. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Excellent. That's it for our discussion on episode three of Petty Dreadful. Again, if you want to send in your thoughts to us about any of the episodes that we're talking about on Petty Dreadful, you can email us to feedback at TV Podcast Industries. We'd love to hear your thoughts uh, for the next section or any of the episodes of Penny Dreadful. Another quick break and we'll be back with our final part of this section of Penny Dreadful, episode four, Demi Mond. I am Connor from the House of L. And I am Ray from the House of Zod. We are two of the many, many survivors of Krypton's destruction, and we have made our home in Australia, and dare I say have become Australians, for better or worse. But we have also decided to read Superman comics, read Superman books, watch Superman shows, cartoons, movies, basically everything Superman, and from an Australian perspective as well. Whether you're a seasoned fan, like me, or whether you are coming in fresh, wide-eyed and wanting to learn more like me, then this podcast is for you. Join us for our bi-weekly adventures available on all good podcast catches. So just search for Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast. We'll be coming to you from Australia or some cosmic dimension, wherever we are that week. Up, 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 up and, and away! away. Welcome back, Penny Faithful, to our discussions about Penny Dreadful Season 1, Episode 4, Demi Mond. I'm one of your hosts, Derek, and I'm here with my dreadful co-hosts. Why, thank you, sir. Yes, <laughs> uh, I am here at one of your other hosts, John. And I am here. My name is Ray, and uh, I'm looking forward to this Episode 4, Demi Mond. Excellent, excellent. Sorry for calling you guys uh, dreadful co-hosts. <laughs> That's but, fine. Hey, look, it works. You're a dreadful co-host. I am also a dreadful co-host. Uh, let's We're get all it. dreadful. <laughs> exactly. Let's get straight into our discussion about episode four, Demi Monde. Uh, once again, directed by Dervla Walsh and written by showrunner John Logan. Once again, I like how they're keeping the uh, group together on this show. You know, it seems like a, a show that is born out of one person's um, vision, I suppose. So nice to have the same kind of people involved in each of the episodes. Yeah, maybe they'll become like the Rolling Stones, where in 90 years' time, it will be Dervla and John Logan <laughs> still doing TV together. Mm-hmm. Well, we, yeah. we will find out in a couple of months' time when uh, when 
Penny Dreadful City of Angels mm. comes out in April. We'll find yeah. out whether Dervil is back involved in that. Exactly. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for this episode of Penny Dreadful? Sure. Frankenstein consults a hematologist, Professor Abraham Van Helsing, who finds the blood contains a unique property that prevents complete coagulation. Mm -hmm. He believes it assists in the eating of blood. Frankenstein begins experimenting on Fenton, the vampire they caught and are keeping in chains. Frankenstein is also having to deal with his creature who wants him to create a female companion for him. Chandler takes Broner to the Grand Guignol Theatre. Grey is there, as is Vanessa, but it's Chandler he is interested in. Oh yeah. Uh, another great episode here. I'm, I'm, you know, one of the things that I love in supernatural stories is vampires. It's one of the things I've always loved reading stories about. And what I always love is when they get to the point of explaining their version of vampires, because vampires have, have some very basic ties between them over the years. Um, some very basic ideas. They eat blood, basically, is the, is the idea that keeps them alive. Some people have explained why it keeps them alive. Um, I'm a massive fan of, of Anne Rice's uh, vampire novels, so uh, her exploration through history with vampires is always really good. I'm also a massive fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so I love their version of vampires as well. And what I love in this show is I love that they've come up with a scientific method to explain why vampires are being kept alive uh, eating blood. I think that's a, that's a really interesting concept that's come into this episode. Yeah, it's um, another little tick in the box for a reference to, um, to Bram Stoker's Dracula with Van Helsing. Um, mm -hmm. And I like how, because Dracula is, for, you know, for all intents, one of the biggest classical monsters there is, and, and mm -hmm, he yeah. takes a peripheral kind of position in this, this whole story, Penny Dreadful, and I love how they just kind of skirt yeah. around um, Dracula. Like, we, we had Fenton... Um, Calling, calling out to his master in the previous episodes. And now we've got Van mm -hmm. Helsing, who's the vampire hunter, knowing all this stuff about vampires. And I love how, like, we don't just, we don't touch upon Dracula himself, you know, because yeah. Yeah. I think in some ways, I don't know, it might cheapen, cheapen it by having him yep. just out there makes him such a, a bigger, like, a force. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so, yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, so definitely, I'm happy to happy to see Van Helsing, and I love this explanation about vampires as well. Yeah, I, I do like that moment with uh, Van Helsing where, uh, again, you don't get much of the explanation of who he is. You know who he is just peripherally because you know about the stories of Dracula, and I love that moment where you have Victor Frankenstein going, um, you must have a lot of knowledge about blood being a hematologist, and he just goes intimately and that's the only little illusion that you get to who this person is and how, how involved he has been in this exploration over the years so quite cool yeah and it, even just that he says about malcolm he doesn't know what he seeks as well you know mm -hmm. in, yes. in, in that sense uh which is, is really good i i do like um the fact that his method for discovering um the stain that reveals the anticoagulant properties is called hannah's wink mm -hmm. uh, i thought that was quite cute um uh, of him for sure it's his wife hannah yes yeah. although i don't really know too much about van helsing mm -hmm. other than he is a vampire hunter uh, and that wolverine did play him <laughs> in, in a movie um as well which again i quite liked even though i don't think it was that great but no, um really anyway was. enough of my cinematic tastes which are pretty poor um and well so you've seen great movies and you loved great movies but you've also seen terrible movies and loved terrible movies <laughs> yeah. so you know it's not it's not exactly. it's just don't focus on all the terrible movies because uh, it will make it sound
again, but uh, let's get into our big moments from episode four. Once again, John, do you want to kick us off with the biggest moment from the episode? <laughs> well, yes, exactly. The pleasures of the flesh, Dorian Gray's orgy, um, and, uh, and more, of course, because um, I do like the fact that we get to glimpse behind the portrait into his hidden kind of little area as well with the hidden painting mm. uh, which we all kind of know but we don't see we don't see what's on it we don't get to glimpse into the hideousness potentially that could be his aging portrait uh, but we certainly see that he's sat there looking at maybe a truer reflection of himself yeah. um after his, his huge uh, orgy. Um, and I, I think it, it comes very much, it helps with the character here. You know, uh, he meets uh, Vanessa at the botanical gardens and talks about the deceptiveness of plants, this idea of beauty to entrap you mm-hmm. um, and the, the deadliness, even though I've written in my notes deadlines for some reason. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> and the deadliness of these beautiful plants with their mm-hmm. flowers and um, you know he he talks about the permanence of art the music being ephemeral uh, and you know it, it it's one of those things i think were um you know even though he is bored with things as we've been talking about before and he must move on to the next new thing within himself he's trying to keep within a certain moment of himself uh by uh, you know keeping his physical appearance youthful he doesn't want to move on from that and mm-hmm. um, yet with everything else he wants the next best thing the yeah. next the, the, and i i really like that kind of dichotomy at the heart of dorian gray mm-hmm. um, th- this need for the new the excessive the more and yet within himself he's wanting to freeze time mm-hmm. uh, to keep that beautiful appearance and yeah. um, he also realizes that's the key to I suppose the the locks that are put in in place for him. This is the mm. the thing he must keep going. Yeah. Is this ability he has to enter any room and get whatever he wants. You know that that's this kind of realization. Um, John mentioned back when we discussed episode three that I called him a hipster. This is the episode where I called him a, hi- a hipster because he has that <laughs> moment where he goes, "Oh, all that music! I know every groove of every single <laughs> cylinder. Oh, can nobody make anything new anymore? It just sounds like every hipster I've ever met." So. But he does have that moment except for one and mm-hmm. i suppose this leads to my uh ultimate point and that is um sort of him and ethan chandler uh running well i don't think they do run they walk fast through a you know in his hall that is adorned with all the pictures um you know i'm not gonna lie this is just a personal uh mm-hmm. moment of sheer joy uh from this episode where you know with the lead Liebstad or, or Love Death of Tristan and Isolde playing uh, from Wagner um, after the theatre and, and the the less than happy ending with Broner, mm. the, the blood sports, the fight being dumped high as a kite probably on absinthe and Dorian Gray's uh, excessive amount of cologne mm-hmm. that he has um, that effectively they have a good old fashioned makeout um with with all this going on so i i really like that and of course with it is ultimately that wagner's love death just playing in the background is 
awesome because mm-hmm. it is that piece of music that at the time the th- the you know Wagner introduced these the, the themes in a sense it, it is the idea that you hear the waves crashing uh, on on the beach here in terms of the drum rolls and and the violins and he's very much sort of brought a very thematic approach i think to music um in this time compared to baroque and and all this from previous so it it's this modern thing it's this new thing that again dorian's connecting on and i like when all these different memories play through um through ethan's head as mm-hmm. well because there is one with the the actress from the the grand guignol theater where she's just been attacked by uh the beast and there's blood spurting <laughs> out but she's reclining it she looks like that grand operatic singer sort of doing the high pitch mm-hmm. the long note but she's got blood just pumping out mm-hmm. of her um as Caliban below is kind of utilizing the the pump to to um this visual effect in in the theater and i i love that i th- just thought it was um really it was just such purely a emotional scene i thought yeah. uh, and i love everything just worked in harmony for me in terms of the flashbacks the music um and obviously dorian gray and ethan chandler getting it on <laughs> i've got to i've got to jump in there john with um and it makes me smile with how you're describing um it it making you feel like seeing the images and the music as well because i see a direct correlation between the the images and the actual musicality of, of wagner and mm-hmm. and Liebstod. so um just a really quick crash crash course class 101 of, mm-hmm. of wagner Liebstod <laughs> as well uh, the way he wrote it um he was heavily into chromaticism which had no um kind mm. of no home key no major minor for those that do know music and mm-hmm. Liebstod was famous for being like very erotic music because what he would do yeah. would be that he would leave um chords unresolved so you get this mm. moment of tension and he creates tension by doing that um, and so he'd never come down to any particular home key. He'd just leave it hanging up there. And what we see right. with the images of Ethan Chandler, with him, um, you know, just reflecting on all these things that have happened, it's it's almost like a build-up for him as well. Mm-hmm. And it just culminates at the end, and there's this um, moment in the music where it, everything kind of explodes, kind of figuratively. Yeah. And it, and it, mm-hmm. to him, he... Become, he gets this realization as well. And that's when he kind of goes up to Dorian Gray, grabs him round the neck, and then he just, mm-hmm. you know, they just make out. And, and I think I, I loved that scene because it was so, I thought, well thought out with the music. Yeah. Um, it was Definitely. so appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah, it was really good. Absolutely. And I, and I think they use even the, the simple fact of it being uh, love and death, you know, the, the fact that these aren't just sensual images that are going on and being uh, cultivated by the music in Ethan's mind. Mm. It is the violence that's gone on. You know, we get another glimpse of some of the murders that have taken place that are flashing in Ethan's mind, mm. something that hasn't actually been connected in the show so far, but Ethan is having flashes of the murders that have happened in previous episodes. He's seeing the blood, he's seeing the death. He's also seeing the love of Brona. He's also seeing some situations that may uh, may have pointed towards love. Um, so I love, I, I really do like how that's all put together as, yeah. the, as the two of them couple. It's it's, uh, it's fascinating, really well put together. Mm. As, yeah, I mean, it, it's really good. I think... Um, 
I, I remember first hearing um, the love death and I was just like, it was nothing I'd ever heard before. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really incredible. And just the, how, how it sort of conjures up um, sort of images in a sense. I think the only other kind of composer I've had that with probably is Sibelius and mm-hmm. um, the Finnish composer. And um, he has a violin concerto and it just, you, get the sense of the forests of Finland from it. It's really incredible. And I think here, um, this, this sort of, um, tragic, hopeless love, um, that is kind of brought out in the love death of Tristan and Isolde, Mm -hmm. you know, Romeo and Juliet, whatever it might be. Um, and in a sense, Ethan has just had that with Brona. And so it connects back to that, I won't go into too much because I do know that that's possibly someone else's ma- big moment <laughs> of the episode. Um, so, yeah, it's really good. But I love, yeah, the way the music's done. I think you even just feel that with the um, the composer for the series as well. Mm, yes. How he, he you know, because Dorian Gray's kind of theme is really nice in this, as is Victor's, as is the overall theme. It, it's 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 really nicely Absolutely. done. Absolutely. He knows his music. And, and also as well, I mean... Tristan in his older, I think it was written around the 1860s as well. So that puts it right close, uh, quite recent. So when Dorian yeah, yeah, um, yeah. thinks about it and it's in his collection of cylinders, uh, it's relatively mm-hmm. new music um, then. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, especially, I suppose, created in cylinders for bringing home to your own house rather than having to go out to theatre to to see it. He can take it home and play it at home. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that would have been definitely relatively new. What what what's the term for people that sort of adopt the new technology? Because he, you know, he's with the photographs mm-hmm. uh, and now and the gramophone. Uh, he's an is uh, an early adopter. There you go. Yeah. Shall we say yeah. he'd be an Apple um, fan nowadays? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I am starting to feel a little bit like Brona in this conversation. Um, you guys with your pretty words about classical music that I know nothing about. <laughs> uh, let's let's move on to the second big point for the episode, Ray. Yeah, um, for me, the big moment for this episode <clears throat> was all the characters going to, to the theatre and watching um, kind of through um, the eyes of Brona and Ethan. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just loved how she was so excited about it, but at the same moment, yeah. it just filled me with dread because when someone's that happy and and everything's so good something's got to happen um absolutely and and we do see it happen later on but um i i thought this was very cool because you do you get to see caliban working earnestly behind the scenes um you know just he's just doing his job uh, and then slowly dorian gray's up there you got vanessa uh, ethan and and brona are there of course and samembe is there apparently um, they make mention of that yeah. as well so mm-hmm. so you have nearly the whole cast there and i found that yeah just as a I don't know, just as a pinch point for the series and the ensemble to come together in one scene mm-hmm. uh, was quite memorable. Uh, but also yeah. as well, the um, again, another little hint there with the performance on stage with a full mm-hmm. moon and the werewolf, um, things are coming. So, uh, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, very interesting. 
Uh, you're expecting a little nudge from Ethan going, do you like the story? Is this <laughs> yeah, a story exactly. that you really enjoy, Brian? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, really good. Yeah, I, I love the excitement of Billy Piper when she's watching this play. It's it's fascinating because, you know, she's she is a hard person. You know, it, it's something that we've that we've said uh, earlier on in the earlier episode. She's a hard character. She doesn't let much penetrate her, her skin or at least tries not to or at least tries not to show it. Whereas here it's moments of pure joy where mm. she's not realizing, you know, the kind of effects that are that putting on stage in front of her, you know, the things that she can't possibly fathom how they were created because the first time she's ever seen it being done. To be absolutely honest, we're over 140 years since this would have taken place. And if I went to a theater and saw this amount of work being put into the production, mm. I'd be pretty satisfied with that night out, right? For, for 20 or 30 quid. That's, yeah, that seems like a, a really good night out. Yeah. Know? Healthy snacks, a nice orange. orange and, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And just the amount of blood that's being used, um, by, uh, mm. by, uh, Caliban when he's below stage just consistently pumping that blood over the uh, over the body of of the the murdered girl um for what seems like about 10 minutes after the play yeah. is finished yeah <laughs> I, I, I that I really I love seeing Caliban working all the different things from mm. the blood pump to the the um false doors on the stage yeah. um there was that moment where it was you know rubbing your stomach patting your head kind of thing where he's working too going in opposite directions mm-hmm. um i think i'd have a bit too much pressure on that i'd probably send keep the werewolf down and the guy or i'd be like mm-hmm. all over the place but i i really liked um seeing all the stage hand work behind i thought it was really really cool yeah isn't there, isn't there even that moment from when vincent arrives back down um after doing his moment on stage and he's like oh this play is so bad on my knees <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> as he's running up and down off stage i loved it because you actually you did see joy in caliban as well well i remember while he's pumping yeah. the blood he's just having the time of his life and um yeah, yeah. so you do see another side of him um or- and vincent's having a drink as well isn't he as well i think with so they're kind of yeah. laughing away yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. really good there's, um, there's one little blink and you'll miss it moment with the uh actor who plays the werewolf um i don't know whether you guys saw it as he sees Caliban working uh, his magic backstage Mm -hmm. Um, before he puts on his mask revealing he's the monster going on stage there's a look that he gives to Caliban as if you don't belong here Mm. Um, it's a really interesting tiny little moment from an extra that really plays into this character of Caliban where he he knows not everybody is as welcoming to him as Vincent is about the theatre there are some people that don't like having someone like him around so uh, I did like that little tiny touch that was in there yeah just a little reminder that you know Mm. his world isn't perfect and uh he's still got this massive kind of um you know weight on his shoulders Mm -hmm. Uh, and another great skill from the showrunners you mentioned uh, ray about having this amount of the cast in one location um Mm -hmm. But I kind of like that not all of them interact with each other and not all of them need to. And if they do, it's only a very small conversation. It's not something massively important to the storyline that every one of these characters have to be in this location. It's not like a a, a big ticking clock, um, a big bomb going off or something like that. You know, uh, Samembe seems to be there just specifically because Vanessa is there and he needs to protect her. He Mm. has that that feeling that he needs to make sure that she's safe. Um, But he doesn't get any moment where he says that or doesn't get any moment where anybody's told that. He's just simply uh, seen on screen 
screen for a quick moment as the camera passes by where he's standing, but he's constantly watching over her rather than the play. So, um, so some just really interesting moments. And I mentioned it already. My favorite moment with Brona because there are moments in all of our lives when we're surrounded by people who either know each other or have a certain way of talking. And Brona just looks at them all and goes, Oh, you all with your fancy words. I'm out of here <laughs> <laughs> because she kind of realizes that no matter how much Ethan loves and respects her no matter how much he wants to be with her she will never fit into their world or at least the her perceived version of their world she'll never have a place there uh, so she walks away from that table before even getting an invite there's a lot of weight with that scene as well um, yeah. mm-hmm. not only just that awkwardness of Broner and Mark the others but the relationships between them all i mean they're all intermingled and that just kind of actually mm-hmm. made it even worse for brona and i think that's probably what had set her off um to to trigger off her insecurities um especially from her interaction with dorian and her current interaction with ethan and uh mm-hmm. and as i mentioned earlier unfortunately it kind of goes pear shaped and she kind of self destructs in that she pushes ethan yeah. away um because she feels I guess filthy at having bumped into mm-hmm. to Dorian and then a- actually having seen Ethan interact with Vanessa, who's from high society. Yeah, um, yeah very yeah, interesting exactly. scene. It, yeah. it, it's kind of like she has a reactive epiphany mm-hmm. ultimately, mm-hmm. Um, that this the sense of being out of place. You know, um, uh, an an immigrant in the big smoke in London, um, the fine words, uh, the different subject matter and, and that idea of her, her feeling inadequate. But mm-hmm. then with the consumption, even she knows that she is about to die. Well, yeah. Um, that she is realizing as, dare I say it, the, the allegory for Isolde that there is a, a death here, even though she loves him. And for her, it is to kind of break that up. She doesn't want that, yeah. that thing. So it, it, it's really, yeah, it's, it's a great little scene between all those. I, I think Absolutely. it's uh, really clever. Absolutely. And just, you know, that moment of meeting the person that just treated her as something that is destined to die. Mm. Um, despite, you know, Ethan's assertion that he will spend every moment with her until that happens. She has just met that character that has treated her as um, the only thing important about you or the only thing interesting about you is that you're almost dead. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really great moment, but a really hard uh, moment with, with Brona. So maybe next episode she'll have a nice moment that doesn't, isn't punctuated by, uh, by death and horror. Probably not, though, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, my big moment about the episode, I really just wanted to talk about some some big story beats that happens connected with Fenton. We talked a lot about Fenton last episode, so I'm not going to go into him too much. Um, but I kind of like this idea that the group of Malcolm and Simbene, uh, Victor and Ethan, are trying to treat Fenton to take away his vampiric ways mm-hmm. uh, using the basis of the investigation that's been done by Van Helsing. Um, and just that turn in him as Vanessa arrives with uh, thinking that he's cured, you know, it's just this kid sitting on the floor and she tries to roll him an <laughs> apple across the dirty floor. Yeah. Not very nice of her, but uh, what his response to her going, oh, I just want bats and rats and blood, you whore, to, to this character that he thinks is trying to help him out, you know. Um, and, Victor's, the... and Victor's response to him just going, yeah. oh, well, it's a process. He's not expected to be cured immediately, is he, you know. Yeah. Uh, really interesting that they, that they do this because this is the central part that we learn as the episode goes on. Sir Malcolm does now believe potentially that Mina has been taken and has been turned into a vampire like Fenton. Uh, doesn't allow him to show um, much restraint in his treatment of Fenton, but he is definitely going to use Fenton to experiment on to see potentially 
if he gets me in the back, he may have to cure her. So why not use this street urchin that he has no caring about um, to try and test these methods before he gets me in the back? Definitely. I mean, I love um, I, I love Malcolm's kind of when he says his chatter is becoming wearisome and um, <laughs> and just his face um, yeah, yeah. because he's obsessed about Vanessa. You know, where's Vanessa? He does have a, a good line directed at uh, at Malcolm as well. Whether I can say it on the podcast, but he goes "f you all," especially you, and he says "tough wanker" uh, <laughs> to to to, um, to Malcolm Sorry. Murray, and I do uh, like uh, that expression indeed. Um, instead of a posh wanker, I suppose, exactly. but it just it, it's really nicely done. Um, but of course, he does. Um, do his master's bidding as well, uh, you know, which is uh, a nice point. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Before you take it. <laughs> <laughs> With Fenton as well, one of the other things I like in this episode is you kind of got that thinking, I suppose, that maybe they were trying to set it up that he may have been going mad and seeing his master in front of him. But I kind of like the reveal that he was actually seeing his master. His master has infiltrated Sir Malcolm's home uh, easily. You know, it's not this old thing of having to be invited in through the door to break in through your enemy's house, which always seemed like a bit of a uh, story protection for the characters. It never feel, felt like a real thing that you could say a monster can't be invited inside your home and then you're protected. Yeah. Uh, sorry, love, you've got windows. You might leave one open. Um, so I do love this moment as Fenton sees his master in front of him and then bites through his own wrists to get out of his binds so he can follow his master to Vanessa's room where they think Vanessa might be because she hasn't come on, uh, to visit Fenton. So um, so these moments of 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 the reveal that the master is inside the home. And I think you mentioned it actually last episode, John. Um, this is the real reveal that the master is after Vanessa, not after Mina. He's already has Mina and Mina is now just the conduit and the way to get to Vanessa. Yeah. Um, it's quite a, quite a big moment really that not only is it revealed to us, the audience, but it's also revealed to us that Malcolm knew that Malcolm knew mm. that potentially Mina was just being used to get Vanessa out of hiding and actually, Malcolm's probably likely to hand over Vanessa in exchange for Mina. It's it's quite a big, uh, yeah. quite a big thing for these characters who we think are quite associated with each other. Yeah, it's an important thought. I mean, they they have a um, a very strange relationship as well. Mm -hmm. uh, there's that one bit. I can't believe if it is in this episode as well, where Malcolm says to Vanessa, um, "You're the the nasty and cruel daughter that I should have had." And I yeah. deserved, exactly. you know, um, yeah. and it yeah, and so they both kind of um, go at each other with. Um, I mean, Mina is the central point for them as well, but knowing mm -hmm. now that um, Sir Malcolm kind of knows the end game for Vanessa makes him out to be a little bit more sinister than we originally think. You know, I mean, he's not perfect. Yeah. But um, mm -hmm. but this is just even even worse, you know. So exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. And we also find out a bit more about his view of Ethan Chandler as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is that nice moment um, where Malcolm is also suggesting that Victor is kind of the son that he he would want. You know, this idea that he would peel away the skin to, uh, to look inside as we saw from episode one when he he gives him the vampire cadaver um, and he goes you know mr chandler is a, a finger on the trigger you are not um you know that's a an interesting uh point of view as well mm -hmm. um i think just bringing it back to to fenton 
as well. Two things uh, I really like after um, he obviously disregards the the apple um you you have malcolm and, and victor talking about going to the butcher going to the slaughterhouse um going to the um uh, the funeral home to get stuff and and uh samembe comes through with um a, a poor black cat which mm-hmm. is like click um so we obviously owning a black cat had to hide our cat uh from this uh visual upsetment mm, yes. <laughs> um it was just like oh okay he just did that because it didn't look like a dummy um it looked like there was a real cat yeah, and then it was like it was well done yeah, yeah so our, our cat was traumatized uh, <laughs> for a while we are assured that no cats were harmed yeah. in the making of this episode our then. podcast <laughs> yes our poor podcast Charlie. um but uh I, I thought oh okay but it was just a nice light-hearted well can i say that i don't know probably not um it it was a nice not nice even it was just (laughs) that shocking moment i suppose um but it had a dark humor uh to it um i i liked how fenton as well was felt like an insect crawling up the stairs behind Mm. victor Mm. and uh malcolm uh, just just as uh, they they go to investigate the the bumps uh, and noises from Vanessa's bedroom, uh, yeah. which was good. Um, yeah, I think um, also as well the appearance of the master in in the bedroom was quite effective because uh, we hadn't seen the creature like that since episode one, um, and yeah. you know for all intents we've 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 seen not that many monsters around so when you do see mm-hmm. it in the in the room like in their abode uh yeah it was quite it was quite effective yeah i love the design of the character there's a um there's a character in the lord of the rings uh the voice of sauron who has the similar style of uh of look about him where the lips are slit open so it reveals oh. more of the teeth than yeah. are humanly possible to reveal and um, so this moment obviously the 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 vampiric characters people that that suck blood teeth are massively important to those characters so this design of him being able to pull back his lips almost five ways to show to expose his teeth is just a, such a terrifying design by uh, by the the showrunners so I, I really like it so i'm excited to see more of him but I, I do love that he has that moment as he's being approached by sir malcolm and by uh, victor that he takes a quick glance at the crucifix on the wall as well. So a little illusion that, yes. that maybe the crucifix is protecting uh, people uh, the way it's said to. Um, so uh, lovely touches in this episode. And I, I really do like the reveal that not all is as it seems. Yeah. And Vanessa is also being used by Sir Malcolm, who will do anything. He'll burn down the world if he gets his daughter back. So um, mm. yeah, nice little points. Uh, yeah. Any other notes about this episode as we uh, as we close out our discussion on episode four? Um, the only one I have, and it's uh, Fenton's final word, uh, which is mother. Mm. Uh, as again, it, that kind of awful kind of idea or notion that you get in your head when you see him fall back towards the smash mirror, and you just realise that the, the the central bit of woodwork that's turned into a stake has just gone through the back of his head. Mm. But his final word is mother, and I like that reflection because he uses it in episode three as well. He mm-hmm. he suddenly sort of becomes distracted and starts talk as though he's talking with his mother and um, and i like the reflection of it that as well it's almost like that in the same way that he uses master mm-hmm. uh obviously you know very cl- similarly kind of related uh, but you know does he see his current master just jump through the 
the window as a mother figure? Is it kind of that kind of idea? Or was his mother pure evil and more of a master? Um, but it's just that that last kind of idea and moment through his, his head is uh, in relation to his mother. Yeah. And how does that connect or does it even with the master? I don't know, but I, I just kind of like that um, yeah. element to it. Interesting, isn't it? Because the way I was seeing it was that potentially Master is the father figure in his life and Vanessa possibly is the mother figure that he's striving to bring back for his master almost, the bride of Dracula, I guess. I actually thought it a third different option there. Um, I thought that, um, similar to you, Derek, um, the Master is is the father figure, the mother is this other Mm -hmm. figure um, because... Fenton says, mother, why does everyone want her? And I'm assuming they're mm. she, um, referring to Vanessa. So this right. is like Mother Evil. I, I don't know what she – and it could yeah. be allusion towards, um, you know, season two later on. Mm, maybe, um, maybe. Yeah, but it was, it was very interesting, interesting scripts. Or it potentially could be an allusion to Amon Ra and Amanes, um, the, the two joined as one. Absolutely. So maybe, maybe Master is Amon Ra and, and Mother is Amon Tess. That's it. Potentially. The hidden ones, and they are hidden. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Um, one, just one point I wanted to raise, I thought was really cool at the end, uh, in that, um, underground, dog fight or whatever it is. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, I found the really cool parallel there between Flash Jack um, decimating the rats and Ethan. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, and then Ethan um, mm-hmm. being approached by those other gentlemen. And so you have these two mm-hmm. fights happening in parallel. And again, a little tidbit there towards the the um, the dogs and, um, you know, wolfish nature uh, and Ethan um, entering that fight as well. So, yeah, I, I like the two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. And, and a primer for what's to come. It's got the adrenaline going, you know. Yeah, I, I do kind of wish that Ethan had taken out those uh, foppish I did as well. Gentlemen, yeah, me like, too. Like, uh, like the dog took out the rats because um, they are the rats of British society. That idea of... <laughs> You're not even welcome here, America. Yeah. We do things the way we want to do them, and you don't even know what that is. Uh, and then they start beating on him yeah. and piling on him. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the scene. And really, once again, the production and the and the editing of that scene, mm. as you see what the fighting is doing to Ethan. And the only reason they're there is once again, you know, we we find out from Dorian Gray this is a thing he used to go to that excited him, and it doesn't excite him anymore because once you get used to these things, mm. ah. Nothing exciting about it. Off I go again. So yeah. another disaffected youth in, in Dorian Gray. Um, quickly, just one quick note, because uh, I didn't mention it last episode when we had the non-reveal of the painting of Dorian Gray. Um, I'm a little disappointed that we don't see what Dorian Gray looks like at potentially 100 or 500 years old, whatever he is, because I think I want to see how disgusting looking and how the actual uh, version of of Dorian Gray will will be on the painting because he seems like he's gone through everything. He seems like he's already experienced everything in life, every debauched uh, thing you can possibly imagine. So what would that painting actually look like if we saw the toll it was taking on his real body? Um, I'm just really intrigued. So maybe it's enough to have it just being shown in the background and the fact that Dorian's quite fascinated by it but now it makes me want to have the camera just go around the other side and see that painting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I definitely want to see it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
let's leave it there for our discussion on episode four of Penny Dreadful. Uh, overall, guys, what did you think of the first four episodes of the show? Ray, as our guest, do you want to kick us off? Oh, yeah. Um, I just thought it was it's very strong, a very strong show. The first four episodes, it has you invested into the stories. There are a lot of things happening, um, but in no way do you get lost in the characters as who's who because they're quite well-defined. I mean, if they're not well-known yeah. literature characters, uh, you do um, get to understand them quite quickly. Uh, just, again, the, the script writing, very very poetic in nature. Um, the, the, uh, the set designs, everything is done just so well. Um, and I think, John, you touched upon it before about I just – there's no holes barred with the violence or the language or anything like that. And that kind of always keeps you um, on edge because yeah. uh, it's a foreign time for us. You know, we, we don't live mm-hmm. that during that era. Um, so anything can happen. Like, you know, uh, things are a bit more barbaric then or a bit more primitive. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very strong series, a very good start to, to the season. Excellent. Excellent. John? Overall, what's your thoughts? Well, if I was to give it an out of five, I would give it five Hannah's winks out of five. Um, yeah, I, I just think this is gorgeously shot, mm-hmm. acted, uh, and written. Um, it's so rich in detail. Um, it's unrelenting, um, and it's complex. There's no easy answer. There's, there's no good versus evil, uh, in that sense, even though it is at its heart, good versus evil mm-hmm. um and i i think there are great supporting characters in this um you know that surround the wonderful central cast i think mr lyle fenton and also um vincent brand as well the the theater um owner are just absolutely great around this central cast and i i think um you know eva green for me just shines as vanessa ives in her performance um it's it's i i the word i've used to describe it would be dangerous um to be honest she she's just this danger she's this unknown sort of something going on in amongst this group and i like the uh, the the unlikely allies in a sense um whether they're allies on or not is a, is another matter but coming together um having their own affliction or curse um and how it treads this path on between modernity uh, and antiquity you know this age of the industrial revolution but we're looking back to Amun-Ra uh, Amunet um and to you know the these previous times with religion and superstition at the heart of it Mm -hmm. yet we have this modernity of science uh contrasting with that this kind of idea of more certainty in the belief of humans to control uh, their own destiny rather than ancient deities i think is really uh interesting so that 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 line of science and superstition walking hand in hand, as Victor says, I think, um, is, is a really great point. And I, I love the fact of the, the reality, you know, of these different shadow worlds of the, the illegal dogfight, the opium den, the seance and the, the lithographs, mm-hmm. um, and, and how that is in itself, um, the underbelly of Victorian society. And, and then you have this deeper, darker, um, more vampiric kind of shadow world as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, really, really good. Um, 
yeah can't wait to do part two to be honest <laughs> excellent so go on derek what are your thoughts on the first four episodes i really really enjoyed this show it's just a beautifully crafted series one of the things that i find so interesting in a penny dreadful is it's a love letter as i mentioned a couple of times to something that is not really done anymore so they are asking a massive amount of their audience here they're asking for their audience to be in love with something that was massively niche over the previous hundred years from when they stopped being produced from when they were replaced by horror movies and comic books you know they're asking for their audience to be in love and know the characters that they may not know you know um one of the things i find very interesting is a lot of the characters that are introduced from uh, Victor Frankenstein to Van Helsing and Dorian Gray, even Mina Murray or Murray Harker, uh, as we've spoken about a little bit uh, in our previous podcasts. Um, all of those characters are introduced as if you're supposed to know who they are. And then even if you do know who they are, the rug gets pulled out from under you, under you because they're not who they were in the past. They're not the people that you may know from their original creation. So that's asking a massive amount of, to, of an audience. And it feels like this show is so confident in that conviction and so confident in putting this on screen for their audience and making them work out. It's kind of almost what benefits it as a show that was on every week because you'd watch an episode and go, well, I wonder who that character is. And then you'd look mm. it up and you'd find out details behind it. And it leaves you to do that research. It leaves you to do it. And when you do that research, as I say, then the rug gets pulled out from under you because it's not exactly the character you were thinking it was. Actually, this character is evil and they were good in the past. Actually, Mina's never going to be saved because she's a vampire. Uh, oh, that's, that's completely different from yeah. the damsel in distress yeah. that was in the original, uh, the original novels and the original movies, you know. So I really like what it's done in the show and how it flips everything on its head uh, and gives you those entry points so that you can kind of piece things together, but always keeps you on the edge of your seat throughout all four of these episodes. So really, really enjoyable show. I'm really excited to get to uh, part two. But that's enough for us for part one of our discussion about Penny Dreadful. Thanks so much to Ray for joining us for this episode. Glad to have you on board, mate. No worries. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, chatting this show with you guys is is uh, it's been a dream. So I've uh, really been enjoying it. Excellent, excellent. You can hear more of Ray over on Into the Night, the Moon Knight podcast, <laughs> and on Last Sons of Krypton, Superman podcast. Yeah, that's right. I um I should include that as well. Yeah. So um obviously doing the Into the Night podcast, um the Moon Knight podcast. Sorry. Uh, at, at ITK Moon Knight, but also do a podcast, Last Sons of Krypton, lskpodcast.libsyn.com. Um, and mm -hmm. LSK Podcast is our handle on Twitter, and uh, you can just search that in Facebook as well. Uh, everything to do with Superman, my co-host Connor is a is an avid fan. I am a newbie, although I am quickly learning, <laughs> so it's a journey mm -hmm. for me. <laughs> uh, Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> And he's been revealing a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that you may not have known about Superman, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and a lot of uh, tearing down a lot of, I guess, stereotypes uh, of mm. of him. That, um, yeah, I always bring up the burning buildings. I know Connor will hate me <laughs> about mentioning it, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's anyway. Give it a listen, even if you are a fan of Superman or you want to know about the character more than the Christopher mm -hmm. Reeve movie. Check it out, but also check out Moon Knight as well. He's he's an awesome, awesome character, and he's coming to the mm -hmm. TV screens very, very soon. Excellent. Again, thanks so much for joining us, Ray. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, dear listeners, you can go over to tvpodcastindustries.com, click any of the subscribe buttons to any of our uh, podcasts. We've covered many many series over time uh, right now we're covering star trek picard 
at the yes. moment. Uh, really enjoying that about halfway through that series. And as we mentioned before, we will in the future be covering Penny Dreadful City of Angels, which is released on April 24th, 2020. We'll be covering that on TV Podcast Industry. So make sure that you stay subscribed to this podcast because you'll get all of our discussions about Penny Dreadful and all of our discussions about Star Trek Picard, all leading up to Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, great to have you on, Ray. Uh, as always, it's a pleasure um, chatting with you. Uh, for sure, it's it's great to have uh, the third voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, third. absolutely. If you want to get these episodes early, as I mentioned earlier on, you can support us over on patreon.com slash TV podcast industries. Uh, any amount of donation there gets these episodes early. But another way to show a bit of love for the podcast, make sure you share the episodes on any of your social media channels. Yeah, well, I think that wraps everything up, guys. Mm. So we'll be back for part two. Um, yeah, as always, uh, fellow Penny faithful, uh, we will be back soon. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Just remember, keep watching, keep listening, and importantly, keep screaming. <laughs> Catch up. Bye. Bye. <laughs>